VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, January the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the program. You know the deal. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing this morning. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 2735211, or elsewhere, it's toll free long distance 1 590 VOCM, which is 8626. So, chilly morning here in the city of St. John's, about minus 7 when I made my way to the office this morning. Looks like some pretty warm temperatures are in the offing and a little bit of rain. So for those of you who enjoy a bit of snow on the ground, get out for a snowshoe or a bit of cross country or whatever the case may be, it might not be lasting too long in this neck of the woods, but there you go. Also, uh, yesterday was opening day at Marble Mountain. If you hit the slopes yesterday, I look forward to a conditions report. Looking to schedule a little time on the West Coast. Some say the best coast of the island sometime this winter ski season, so there you go. A quick note, uh, congratulations to Zach O'Brien. Of course, he's a forward with the Newfoundland Growlers. For the second time this year, he's been named the ECHL Player of the Week. He leads the league in scoring this year. He's got 15 goals and 42 assists at this moment, and Zach is a beauty. And as I've said in the past, when you see guys like Zach O'Brien play, and here they are playing at the ECHL level, you just wonder, how good do you have to be? to play in the American League or the National Hockey League, but O'Brien's a bit of a wizard out there, but boy, oh boy, he must be some talent. And of course, I've seen NHL games, so you know how great they are, but boy, for O'Brien not to be good enough to be at least playing for the Marlies, really something else. All right, uh, today in history, 1918, Joe Malone, Montreal Canadian center, scored five goals in a 9-4 victory against Ottawa, became the first NHL 20-goal scorer, finished the season with 44. If you score 20 goals a year as an NHLer these days, you can count the millions in the contracts because, you know, 20 goals is still a pretty good number. There's few and far between are the big mega goal scores, the 40, 50, 60 goal scores. 20, pretty good benchmark. But anyway, a couple more quickies, sir. Uh, today, 1993, I remember this announcement. Uh, Pittsburgh Penguins legend Mario Lemieux announced to the world that he'd been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. You can only imagine what his career would have looked like had he not missed some of the time that he did miss. But that's an interesting one. And in 1995, the world watched, and the whole world of criminal justice and eyes and ears peering into the proceedings really changed in 95 when the O.J. Simpson murder trial began, and that was this date in history in 1995. Okay. You know, in gigs like this, and I suppose whatever any of you are doing, trying to keep your memory sharp is tricky at the very best of times. Mine used to be a little bit sharper than it is these days, but I didn't know I don't know if you've ever heard of anything called the Memory League World Championship. This is just fascinating stuff. So a couple of uh, notable Canadians involved at the world level. Braden Adams of Chilliwack, BC, and Don Michael Vickers of Sydney Mines, Nova Scotia. They're both competing this upcoming 2023 Memory League World Championships. So it's person versus person to test your memory, whether it be recalling the names or words or numbers or cards. They use a technique, which apparently is as old as the hills, called the memory palace. So what that includes is what you do is you pay, uh, take a physical space you're used to, your own home or your office or your garage or whatever the case may be. So when you 
are given something that you're asked to remember, you place it somewhere along your path and walking through your home, for instance. So I don't know if I've ever really tried anything as specific as that, but apparently this is the trick, the technique that all of these memory champions go back to. So when you are given a card or what have you, you place it on the shelf uh, at that you, as you walk down the hallway, whatever the case would be in your own home, and you close your eyes and you're able to recall a little clearer. People work on their memory for a variety of reasons, whether it be for their job and or for aging. So get a load of some of these things here. So one of them, this fellow Adams, he went on to be interviewed by, on some show by some host. And at the beginning of the interview, he was given six three-digit numbers to remember. They were 756, 532, 187, 441, 678, and 309. That was at the very beginning of the interview. At the end of the interview, the interviewer asked Mr. Adams to recall it and bang, able to do so, no problem. Here's a couple other ones that is just absolutely mind-boggling. According to the Canadian Mind Sports Association, he established four national memory records in 2019. He memorized 292 images in five minutes. 62 names in 5 minutes, 122 random words in 10 minutes, and 393 digits in 10 minutes. I mean, you and I all know the struggle was trying to remember someone's name that you've been introduced to, but that guy was able to recall all of that, setting four national records. In addition to that, he memorized the order, in order, almost 70 complete decks of cards to raise money for the Alzheimer's Association. So when asked to recall the order of 70 decks of 52 cards apiece, the, he recalled 3,636 out of 3,640. So there's a boy with a memory. I guess everyone who competes at that level. But just imagine, can recall all of that kind of stuff when we all struggle with the very fundamentals. Anyway, let's keep going. I thought that was quite interesting. So today, even though the members of Parliament are not sitting, the Transport Committee met on Monday and unanimously supported calling witnesses to discuss what has been the travel debacle, especially over the holiday season. You and I have all heard the stories. So set to testify today is the Minister of Transport himself, that's Omar Al-Gabra. So he even said while Parliament was sitting that the travel snags that he witnessed and was being told about were quote-unquote unacceptable. And they are absolutely unacceptable. The industry is in a bit of a mess. So they'll all point fingers of blame, whether it be at weather or scheduling or preparedness on the ground with crews and border security agents and up and down the line. But it has been a massive problem. And it's not just in the air. There was huge problems facing rail passengers as well. So Via Rail and CN are also going to come and testify, but not today. But the minister will. It will also include representatives, or executives, pardon me, from WestJet, Air Canada, and Sunwing, who all experienced real problems in getting their hard-paying customers where they were going in a timely fashion. It gets even further frustrating when you know that the lack of communication that really made it so much more difficult and frustrating and raised the ire or anger of the traveling public when you just can't find out what's going on. And then you go, you're sticking around the airport, and then all of a sudden the help desk representing one of these airlines has gone by the wayside. So we need to hear from airport authorities, airlines, and yes, the government to be held to account. But here's the question. When we talk about holding a politician to account, how does that look? Is it simply ballot box time? Is it incumbent on the prime minister, for instance, if, oh, if Al-Gabra Al is not up to the task to shuffle him out? He seems like a reasonable minister, but the problems are absolutely unbelievable. Add in the airlines trying to skirt compensation afforded to passengers with the passenger protection regulations, which are a little bit toothless anyway. So this is a big deal. 
You know, if we're talking about such a vitally important industry, being the air travel industry in particular, but I guess add to it the rail industry in certain parts of the country where they actually have access to travel by rail. But when it comes to holding the airlines accountable, what does that mean? Is it simply about passenger protection regulations and compensation when deserved? Because what does the government do beyond put some of this legislation in place for compensation? How else can you hold an airline, for instance, to account? I don't know. I'm throwing it out there for your consideration. But we've got to fix this. You know, you cannot have that be the feature of busy travel times. Now, when the pent-up demand and pandemic restrictions were lifted and mandates went by the wayside, you know full well that the traveling public was chomping at the bit to get back up into the sky to do some travel, whether it be for business or just for pleasure or whatever the case may be. So the minister himself will be testifying in uh, in front of the transport committee today, and that's required. Anyway, you want to talk about that? We can do it. And an interesting note on travel, it was yesterday, this date in history, January 11th, 1938, the very first airline touched down at Gander International Airport, just out of curiosity. I already talked about this in the past. I'm going to throw it out there again. And this is based on some comments and quotes that come from a fellow who's actually a hydroponic, hydroponic indoor farmer, Scott Neary. He's the indoor, he's part of me, he's the CEO of Green Farm NL. Talking about the potential for if and when we can figure out what Canopy Growth has planned for their massive facility, which is 230,000 square feet on the White Hills. So Mr. Neri goes on to talk about it's well understood technology, and he's able to produce enough greens, whether it be in the world of uh, basil, bok choy, arugula, kale, lettuce, to some, uh, what's the number, 250 to 300 families per week. He said utilizing the growth space available at the canopy facility, you could produce up to 10 times that, delivered to 30,000 or 40,000 families per week. You know, I suppose it's probably too big for any one sole private sector entity to take on the enormity of that facility. He says it might be an ideal opportunity for said public-private partnership, even though there's probably places we can utilize these P3s much more efficiently and effectively and protect the consumer and the taxpayer, maybe outside of healthcare, you know, which is, I think, highly questionable. But we need to know what Canopy has planned for that facility. It's a real shame to look at food insecurity-related matters and to see that 230,000 square feet of hydroponics and storage is right there for the taking. Now, Canopy is unsure what next steps are. And remember, you know, it'd be nice to be on the receiving end as that numbered company, $24 million over five years to lease that plot of land. And it's a $90 million facility. So we'll see what becomes of it. But, you know, when you speak directly to people who know what they're talking about, unlike me in the hydroponic world, Scott Neri does. He gets it. He understands it. He's doing it. Maybe let's see if Scott, who's obviously very busy as a farmer, so Scott Neri, if you're listening this morning, and maybe Dave, let's see if we can get the folks at Green Farm NL to talk about potential on that front. Okay. And in the wo- world, the wood, <laughs> the world of food. So you know, parliamentary committee looking at the grocery chains. And the grocers will say that their input costs are way up, operating costs are way up, and it's no sense simply looking at revenue because, of course, with the price of goods and the amount of money people have to shop, then, of course, revenues are going to skyrocket. The measure will come down to infl- uh, pardon me, to profit. And Loblaws, when presenting their case in front of the general public, they're quite cross at us for even suggesting that there might be some excess profits, whatever that actually means, excess profits, because who's supposed to be able to adjudicate what's a fair profit? But the profits are up, so they can tell us whatever they want. And so here's some of the most recent numbers coming directly from Empire. That's, of course, the conglomerate that owns 
operations like Sobeys, Safeway, Freshco, Thrifty Foods. Here you go. The retail section adjusted gross profits by 10 basis points to 30.8%. Boiled back down a little bit more fundamentally. Net earnings available to their common shareholders of the company were $556 million, an increase of $125 million, or 29%. Their posted net earnings increased of 8.3% in the second quarter and a 10% increase to their dividend value. Go on to bust it down a little further. So... Their net earnings increased by 9.4% in the 2022 fourth quarter. Again, maybe boil down or even a little bit further. So Canada's grocers, not just Loblaws or Empire, they enjoyed average profits in 2022 relative to the past five years. In particular, Loblaws beat their previous best results by $180 million in the first half of last year. So their best earnings and profit uh, quarters ever And at the exact same time, yes, it's easy enough to fall for the political rhetoric of inflation. Inflation has curbed a little bit, you know, down to just under 7, while food inflation remains in the 11s. And it looks like there's more of that particular pain to come. So it's a combination of all these things. Global supply chain disruptions and war and increased cost of fuels and insurance. But the profits have gone up, and it's as plain as the nose on your face. And that's not coming from reading between the lines. That's coming directly from quotes from Empire's executives as they presented to their common shareholders yesterday. Okay, if you were waiting for your $500 check and you were a late tax filer last year, you're going to have to be waiting a little bit longer. We're told that some of the reports of CRA are just arriving to the province now. So if you don't have your check and you were a late filer in 2021, or pardon me, 2021, you're probably waiting until next month to get your $500 check. Thought I'd throw that one out there. Okay, got no choice but to talk health. So the most recent numbers that we had concerning the numbers of people in the province without access to a family doctor, the most recent number we had was 125,000, and that was all bad enough. Now the most recent research numbers coming from narrative research, they just based it on population data and a snapshot in time, They're now suggesting that there's as many as 136,000 people in the province without a family doctor. So while we see the province reporting that X number of doctors came to the province, whether it be on the come-home year incentives or otherwise, some of the other suite of incentives and lures that the government has dangled, but obviously we didn't get the entire picture painted clearly because if there's now an additional 11,000 people in the province without a family doctor, an increase of more than 8%, then the numbers of doctors came in pale in comparison to the number of doctors that went out and or just retired. So that number, I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest. I thought there might have been some stability, but apparently not. Well, that at least says the numbers coming from narrative research. You know, they will call it a crisis, and it may indeed be exactly that. And your experience, of course, will be your own. You might be in a crisis mode with access to primary care or wait times for a procedure or access to diagnostic, diagnostic imaging or what have you. But there has been a shared agenda agreement struck between the NLMA and the provincial government, the Department of Health and Community Services, to deal with improving family medicine in the province. Obviously, a lot of work to be done. You know, I don't know if it's good, bad, or indifferent, but I know that the province probably feels like there's no option but to be super aggressive in trying to recruit, and hopefully super smart in the effort to retain. So we don't know how successful the trip was to India to recruit nurses. Remains to be seen what will be the outcome of 11 recruiters making their way to Ireland, visiting four cities in six days. So the Irish are stressed out. They've got very similar problems to what we're experiencing here in this province and right across the country. 
they've got they've got so many overlaps here. So with the problems we're talking about cultural overlap, a familiarity, and Canada would be a likely home if an Irish physician is looking to leave. So we can talk about rate of pay, we can talk about housing and proximity to your healthcare facility and all those types of things. But let's just say, for instance, we are successful. And it'd be nice to know what kind of targets in place to evaluate success or failure. But even if they come, whether it be a nurse or a doctor or anybody else, and they set foot in the province, what's, what's in place to ensure they stay? Because if it's simply rate of pay, a registered nurse might look further afield, move further west to make more money. They'll hear the same stories that we all talk about here on this program and out throughout media and your social circle and at the water cooler, is that there's issues that have led to problems in retention. So if you want to talk about how and why and where we're recruiting and what the hope would be, it would be nice if the province told us that here's the goal. You know, 100 healthcare professionals by August the 1st through a variety of disciplines, and we'll see where we are when we get to August the 1st. And hopefully that would be net gain of 100, but anyway, you want to tackle it. We can do it. Uh, specific, this would be niche, but for the folks, uh, for instance, down in uh, Marystown, Sacred Heart Academy, or out in Port of Port, where there looks like there might be the possibility of no French immersion available, it's a cultural part of the fabric of the Port of Port Peninsula, for instance, and they've got really strong enrollment. Some 40% of registrants for next year have chosen French immersion, but yet there might not be that course offering in that area in the upcoming school year. So I know that's niche, but if you want to take it on, we can do it. How are we doing on the telephone this morning there, David? <coughs> Very quickly, stick with schools. You know, there was a contract awarded to, uh, the company just jumped out of my mind, for the air purification systems. Whether or not they're the best ones for the job, I don't know, but here's the question. We've taken that step. We know that ventilation, air purification, is going to go a long way. And this is not just about COVID or anything else, about air quality and what it means for our overall health. What kind of testing is in place to ensure that the units we have are doing the job we want, and what's the status of air quality throughout the various schools and classrooms in the province? What kind of testing do we actually do? It's one thing to buy a unit, put it in the corner, plug it in, change the filters upon manufacturer's requirements, but is it actually doing the job? Because we've seen the stories about absenteeism and the amount of respiratory illness that's kicking around. So I just wonder what kind of work we're doing on that front. And please, the Crown Lands issue, if you have engaged with the province via the website, which is EngageNL, to talk about your Crown Land concern, whether it be a concern and an issue of the past that you had to work through in the legal system and or you think you have one pending, let's share the stories on this program to light the proverbial fire under the government, to put forth the, uh, uh, the appropriate and required amendments to the Lands Act, because this Crown Lands issue is going to strike hundreds of families, hundreds, literally hundreds, maybe thousands. So we want to take it on. We can do it. And very quickly, this might be a bit of an inside joke, but to the person who labeled their Wi-Fi connection as CSIS Surveillance Van Unit 36, my doff of the cap to you. That's absolutely hilarious. And you now are a legend. CISA Surveillance Van <laughs> Unit 56. Uh, somewhere in the center of the city. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Uh, Christina, you're on the air. 
Hi, Patty. Uh, how are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, I'm, it's going. Uh, what I'm calling about, Patty, is um, I've reached out to, first and foremost, I have a son that uh, uh, is addicted to uh, severe addiction uh, with uh, crack cocaine. And uh, I've been, I've been, I've, I've reached out to everybody. Like, there's absolutely nobody I haven't reached out to. Uh, my son, I was out in St. John's, uh, I went out in August, uh, and I was uh, going treatments for cancer. And my son reached out to me the third week of October, crying, telling me, Mom, I need the help. I'm ready. I'm ready for the help. I need treatment. I really need treatment. So... I took it in my hands and uh, done still fighting, and uh, uh, he's still waiting treatment. Uh, he took it, uh, uh, reached out to people out of the province uh, to see if he could get accepted, and he was accepted to one in Bellwood, Ontario. They even done the intake and everything, and uh, for some reason, uh, the province won't pay for it, and... Uh, I had meetings with the Premier and our MAJ Perry and uh, Justice Minister. There was two other gentlemen there. I'm not sure who they were right now. And I discussed it with them, and uh, the Premier asked our MAJ to make sure he follows up on this and it happens. And uh, I just feel the moment I left that office, they just shut the doors on me and closed it all, just completely ignored it. And I'm still uh, still fighting today, and my son is still waiting. Uh, they said that he uh, would have to do in-province uh, treatment. Uh, he's been waiting for... He, he's been waiting for in-province treatment for, I'm going to say, the last six weeks, probably. And still no timeline on when he'll be accepted or when there's a bed available. And, you know, uh, uh, drug addictions is big in our community. I know it's everywhere. But unfortunately, we have nowhere for any of our drug-addicted people to go. Even if they wanted the help, there is just absolutely nowhere for them to go. And then we have the government now going to put up a $40 million building for the hubs and for alcohol addictions. Like, where are they doing their homework? So... I'm speaking with Christine Tremblett, I'm assuming. Is that right, ma'am? That's correct. Okay, I read the story, and there was some heartbreak on my behalf by reading your son's story and your story, so there's a lot to this. Let's just break it down a little bit so people know exactly the complications you're facing. The wait times, even just to get into whether it be Humberwood out west or the Gray Center, wait time is at, it's well over a month. It's maybe a month and a half. Plus, when you get into a provincial program, generally speaking, they're about three weeks in length. And for people with very serious addictions where we know, even through the withdrawal period and the ability to have full rehab, it takes a lot longer. If you get into some of these facilities on the mainland, you could be in there for three months. So the disconnect between the wait time for four to six weeks to get into a provincial center to get what might not actually help your son to then have to get, wait for more intake and wait for a bed in a facility in Ontario, we'll just say, then we could be looking at a disjointed process where it might be one step forward and two steps back. So it's a bit strange. In addition to that, if I remember the story correctly, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that we're now also being told, and I'm not sure what to make of this, but 
The MHAs have been told not to in get involved directly in a case-by-case basis. I suppose that's because we don't want MHAs to be able to pull strings based on who they know, who they are, their relationship with you or anyone else in the community. So did I paint a clear picture of wait times and the implications here? Yes, but like I said, Patty, the sad part of it all, he was accepted for Bellwood. They had a bed there waiting for him. That's what that's what's heart wrenching. Oh, I know. I, I I totally get it. Especially when I don't know how long this has been going on, but when your boy finally tells you, "Mom, I need help. Mom, I'm ready to get help." You go through the process. You think you're optimistic because of the funding optimistic when you leave a meeting. Just to lo and behold, go all the way back to square one. I can only imagine what it means. So it's one thing for your frustration as a loving mother. What has it now meant for your son? Oh, like I just like you know I just uh, I just see him and I see like the the darkness in him and I just I I can't imagine the dark in him. Like I came out here uh, uh, in the shed because that's where he spends his time. Like he has no connection with anybody since he reached out for the help. Uh, he's in in the house or out in the shed. That's that's his limit of going anywhere. So he's not interacting with anybody. I mean, it's not healthy all the way around. I came out here last Friday, and when I came out, he was crying to break his heart. I said to him, I said, like, what's wrong? He said, Mom, I just want to be left alone. Well, you know what? Mom is not leaving you alone in that state. Because how dark was he, how dark was he up there? I can only imagine see my boy like crying like that you know yeah i don't know where we go from here but you know there's one thing to build a big centralized facility as you mentioned here in the health sciences complex but for immediate need because sometimes the biggest problem that we have is for someone who has or is suffering a serious addiction to acknowledge it and understand it and to want help and when we arrive at that point we sure have to be able to respond and get them in for appropriate treatment because that's what we've always wanted. We wanted them to say, okay, I'm ready to get the help. And, Christine, before we run out of time here this morning, how are you? Because I know you're also dealing with your own health concerns. Oh, yes. Like, uh, I'll find out now where I go with the next step because I have my uh, teleconference now on Tuesday, so I'll see where I'm to now with my cancer. So, And uh, it's hard all the way around, you know. I'm not well myself. And I mean, you know, I mean, fighting for my life and uh, and whichever way the government want to look at it. I mean, this addiction and Richard has more or my son has more than uh, uh, this addiction. I mean, like he has things that he needs to deal with, like, you know, but uh, and seeing my son, I mean, like this addiction, I mean, is a deadly addiction. I mean, we've seen so many people in our community in all of Labrador that took their lives because there was nobody out there to listen to them. And every time I call our MHA here in Happy Valley Goose Bay, or not call him, message him, I ask him, can I meet with you face-to-face? And he just comes back and says, oh, I haven't got the time. I haven't got the time. Uh, This is the best way to reach me. Like, come on. I understand your concern. I appreciate your time, Christine. We'll, we'll follow up with the department directly on wait times and intervention and funding and all the rest of it because the good news is that your boy wants help. The bad news is, of course, that he can't get it when he needs it. And who knows if his mind will change or things will get worse or whatever may present itself in the days and weeks to come. 
unfortunately, you know, I know we need, we don't want people hurting in other countries and all that, but our government is paying billions and billions of dollars taking these people into our province when we have our own people here that's suffering so, so bad. And the only reason they're not doing it is because of the money. Like, come on. I appreciate your time. I wish you well, Christine. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, wait, now, I'm going to put you on hold. Dave has something for you, okay? Okay, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So let's do exactly that. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Bob's in the queue. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number two, Bob, you're on the air. Hey, uh, uh, Patty, I'd like to talk about uh, the electric car plant that's going to Quebec. Sure. Now, don't you see the significance of this? Uh, most of the components for the electric car are in Newfoundland, right? Sorry, say that again? I say most of, most of the components for the electric car are in Newfoundland. Yeah, in northern Quebec as well. Oh, is there? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're talking about the prevalence or the presence of lithium, nickel, and there's a couple other minerals. But we have them in Labrador, too. Absolutely. No question. Well, I think Quebec, you know, Quebec don't have hydropower. What? They don't have iron ore, but they're doing pretty well in our resources. So now, what do you think is going to happen now? The plant is in Quebec. They're going to be processing all those uh, components in, in Quebec, I guess, like they're doing with uh, hydropower, like they're doing with iron ore. And they're going to take. They're going to be taking advantage of that. Of course, but I'm sorry. Maybe I'm missing the ultimate point here. Is that why would it be in Quebec versus being in Labrador, for instance? Is that where we're going? Yeah. Well, not only that. Uh, how can we stop them from getting all the benefit of the of all the resource? You know, process. You know, they're getting the benefit of hydropower. They're getting the benefit of iron ore. Have been for sixty years or so. How do we stop them from getting all the benefit of the components that we have? Um. So who would stop them? I mean, there's iron ore in Quebec as well, but that's neither here nor there. Um. Because this was a decision, as far as I know, and if, if I'm mistaken here, I'm happy to be set straight. So this is a relationship between a South Korean company, I can't remember, the Pisco or Pasco Chemical or something, uh, and General Motors. They're going to spend some $400 million to build this facility. It's just outside of Trois-Rivières. They've got a bunch of the minerals uh, already in hand to manufacture, to produce these batteries, which are going to drive the, the couple of the GM products. Uh, one is the Silverado, their uh, pickup truck that's going to be electric, and the other one is for their Hummer. So what can anyone do to stop General Motors and a South Korean company from choosing to set up shop in Quebec? Oh, well, uh, no, uh, I don't expect to, uh, to stop them from building the plant. But uh, I just uh, want to stop them from processing it all in in Quebec. Processing all it. they got to be refined when they come out of the ground, haven't they? Oh yeah, there are steps before it makes it into electric vehicle battery facility. Yeah. Yeah, C- couldn't that be done in Newfoundland? Absolutely. 
Well, it's the same conversation that we've had with the minister and that I've been talking about for a while. Just to bring it back to 100,000 feet above sea level, Canada is the only democratic first world country in the world with all of the mineral components required for batteries for cell phones, laptops, and electric vehicles, to name a few. We have not done a great job, certainly in this province, and maybe not even in this country, with ensuring that we can, uh, we can explore, extract, produce, refine, and manufacture something like a battery as opposed to sell the minerals to someone and then buy the batteries back from them. So absolutely there's got to be opportunities more so than more beyond simply mining it. There's massive opportunities for the province to grab onto, and that's something I've been talking about for a while. Yeah, but the way is lined up for me now. We, we we got a committee for 2041. Why don't we get a committee now to make sure that we get the ultimate benefit from, if we got the most resources, you know, the ultimate benefit. How come uh, Labrador iron ore is being processed in Quebec all these years? Right? Well, Bloom Lake is an uh, is a iron ore mine as well, as far as I understand, and that's Quebec. I mean, we share a boundary with that province, right? That Labrador trough of minerals is extremely ripe and rich with opportunity here. So where we go with our critical minerals and the role we play here in this province, I think is a good question. You know, but how do how do we ensure that we get someone like GM or POSCO or anyone else to come to town? Because we have sunk a deal, like... Valley, uh, pardon me, IOC, is it IOC? They sunk a deal with one of the uh, battery manufacturers for Tesla. Can't remember now, it was a Swedish group or a Swiss group at this moment in time, but we've sunk some of those deals. Uh, whether or not they're going to grow to uh, more and more opportunities with things beyond simply extracting the mineral, I don't know, but we should, can sure hope that they do. And the 2041 uh, committee, that's a good idea, isn't it? To understand exactly what 2041 means, because I don't think we all really know. Yeah, but, but I want to do the same thing uh, by Newfoundland, you know. that uh, uh, It seems like uh, Quebec got all the influence in in, uh, in Ottawa. Uh, you know, uh, you can't get elected without Quebec. And I wouldn't doubt that they're stopping that uh, uh, Atlantic Loop idea. Because that's not in their bed. They want to keep us uh, dependent on... on uh, and then they export that uh, hydropower to uh, to the states or wherever they're doing with it, right? Yeah, but they don't even produce enough power to satisfy the power needs in the northeastern United States. I mean, even just the city of New York, which is talking about Canadian hydro. I would imagine if the Atlantic Loop ever comes to play and becomes a real thing, that I'm willing to bet my check that the organization at the top of that food chart will be Hydro-Quebec. Yeah, I want to move on, make my other points sure. before I run out of time, Patty. Okay. I noticed uh, the Mounties spent about $50 million protecting the Alberta pipeline. That's, uh, and uh, it was damaged, uh, and the federal government had to spend money to repair it. And they already spent $20 million, uh, uh, building that pipeline. So, I mean, you can't say that they're not encouraging and assisting Alberta with their oil. And, uh, you know, people keep harping on, uh, on on climate change. They're beating that to death, and they're not getting anywhere with it. 
They're not making any progress. Russia is not going to worry about climate change. Or they're not we, we can't do anything about Russia there. or China or anything else. I don't know why people keep saying that. I don't know what anyone thinks anyone can do about Russia or China or India. That's right, and that's my point. Uh, I mean, so why can't uh, Newfoundland uh, uh, have the transition oil, you know? But who's that up to? Again, I, th- I get a little bit confused with the starting point some people take here. So, for instance, the, the government is killing the oil industry. Last year, records set across the board in Canadian oil. Record production, record revenue, record profit. That doesn't really sound like an industry that's dying on the vine. And how can we ensure that the world, whatever the appetite is for oil, uses oil that's produced off our shore? Like, whose responsibility is that? I don't know. Uh, if anyone is applying with a carbon tax don't help much. That's a definite discouragement. A carbon tax is designed to discourage oil, isn't it? Well, it doesn't seem to be the concerns that the companies operating in the oil sands in Alberta have voiced. Well, that's what Canada seems to be doing, or Trudeau. He's, you know, he's very bullish on climate change. Everything well, I say is either discouraging Newfoundland oil, but when it comes time for uh, uh, approval, they're, they're making the, the conditions harder all the time. Uh, the only maybe oil. I'm going to have to leave all that this far. I, I'm beating it to death now. <laughs> well, that's all right. I don't mind that. But of course, the only uh, application for production in this province that was in play for Beta Nord was given the green light. Now, it might be more difficult in years to come, just simply based on comments from Minister Gibo. But, of course, it might not always be the Liberals in power either, so the future, I think, is a moving target. But there's, there's literally zero applications in front of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. None. The last one on the desk was Beta Nord. That got released from its environmental assessment. Remains to be seen whether or not Equinor is going to give it the business sanction. I would imagine they will. I mean, they say their business model break-even is about 35 bucks a barrel. Uh, we're well in excess of that. So, yeah, I mean, as much as we hear all the time that the oil industry is being crushed, record production, record revenue, record profits last year. Records across the board. And again, we bought that bloody pipeline. All of us, collectively, we bought that. And the end uh, price tag of that's going to be in and around $20 billion. So it all sort of, you know. Yeah, you can't help me thinking the way, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ottawa hasn't been good to Newfoundland in anything, in the fishery and standing up to Quebec or the hydropower. And uh, it seems like we're, we're not doing well out of our oil. And uh, climate change is not the issue now. I mean, you can't keep beating that to death. What can you do about it? What, what, you know, how can you persuade Saudi Arabia to stop producing oil or stop Russia, right? From, but how does any of that happen? I don't think happen? they're too worried about climate, uh, climate ch- change or environmental damage, according to what they're doing in the Ukraine. Anyway, Patty. Uh, All right, Pop. Appreciate uh, the call. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, it, some of those things confuse me. Uh, maybe I'm just stupid. It could be. That could very well be. Like you know, even the importation of oil, it would make a lot of sense to the domestic economy if production and refining was done of Canadian product. Of course it would, right? It makes sense. 
So, you know, people will harken back to the energy use pipeline and how that went by the wayside. And that the Irvings importing Saudi Arabian oil, for instance. And we've heard certain politicians say that if they have their druthers and the power to do so, they will disallow a private sector company from importing oil from anywhere but a Canadian producer, which is interesting intervention into uh, private sector operations. And then, you know, about encouraging or demanding or influencing certain countries to stop producing oil or however that works. Like, who actually has that type of clout? Whose responsibility is it that if you're pro-oil in this province, whose responsibility is it to ensure that if there's oil plays out there, that the landscape and regulatory certainty is in place and a favorable business atmosphere and landscape is in place so that companies will continue to see this offshore as a place to invest in and do business. You know, we had a couple of record years at the CNLOPB, then we had a couple of down years, and then we just had a reasonable year with, I think it was a $27 million pa package was purchased. So where does that responsibility lie? It really sounds and feels like the province is still pretty bullish on oil. <laughs> I mean, we went to an environmental conference to talk about oil, which is a strange place to do it, but they did it. So where does all that responsibility lie? It's not to say we can't do better. It's not to say we can't do, and this is throughout industry, whether it be in mining where Bob started and taking more ownership of end product, uh, whether it be in the oil industry, whether it be in uh, the gas industry, whether it be in uh, the forestry or fishery, or like, where do all of these different responsibilities lie? Because it might not be as fundamental as it's sometimes posed. Let's take a break. When we come back, lots of time to speak with you. The topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. It's, 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 it's a winter morning that uh, should be enjoyed by all. Skating, skiing, you name it, we can do it. And some. <laughs> anyway, uh, you're still there, are you, Patty? I'm listening. Okay. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, astronauts, aliens, and the moon. Uh, it's been said that uh, the astronauts didn't see anything when they were when they were making their trips, right? There's a guy here by the name of John Francois Clairvoy. He was the director of the uh, European Space Agency, astronaut and a NASA engineer. This was said at a conference in October. He said there are numerous UFO cases that we know really did happen. He explained that there are testimonies from pilots, radar data, and even uh, footage. And if anybody's interested, you can Google and get Buzz Aldrin on the first trip there when he's reporting back to NASA. This is actual footage. Uh, he's talking about uh, seeing objects. They don't know what they are. And Houston is kind of confused and trying to direct them to a, another area. Another example, Edgar Mitchell came back, and uh, he was an astronaut that went there as well. He hasn't stopped talking about them since, conferences and so on. I think they, they're all limited as, as, as to what exactly they can say. But uh, anybody who's interested in this stuff, uh, there's, there's, there's uh, lots there to Google. 
You want to comment yourself? Well, I'm not really sure what to say about some of those individuals beyond the Aldrins of the world. Uh, I don't know who some of those people are. Uh, I don't have a whole lot more to say beyond what I said last time around. I don't know exactly what to think or to believe on that front. I think I'd be fooled to think that there's no other entity in this universe beyond us. Now, how they've manifested themselves and been here or looked at us or investigated or evaluated the planet, I really don't know. But some of the reports you hear, for instance, from NASA and the American military and others just give you reason to think, now, what that, let, let's just say, for instance, that I think, okay, they've been here. What am I supposed to do with that information is something that I'm always a little bit left out with this, this type of conversation is, let's just say what you believe is actually true. What am I supposed to do with that info? Yeah, that's right. There's, there's not much you, you can do. To me, it's the greatest story uh, 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 untold, in a sense, because it's, it's put out there as uh, hocus pocus. But uh, you can't do much w- with it. But if uh, if it came out as a real story, uh, in the sense that other things uh, you're sure happened, then of course it would be uh, totally amazing. Uh, what you can do, nothing at all. I think there's three types of people. There's those like myself who've seen uh, our craft, and those in that category are those who studied and have done the research because they're interested. They are, they all know what's happening. There's those who say there's life elsewhere, but it can't reach here. Uh, they got no problem with that. And then there's a larger group that say it's all hocus pocus and uh, all these sightings and all these people, Jimmy Carter and all the others are all, uh, it's, it, it's all just nonsense. But anyway, I'm in the first category on that one, and uh, I, I, I think you'd be close there. But anyway, I'll leave it at that. Uh, I want to talk about immigration. Suzuki was knocked for... Uh, his stance on immigration, he basically said the Canadian system uh, uh, siphons off uh, professional people from uh, countries that really need them. Uh, He said, we've got no problem with uh, refugees taking in people like that, but to take these uh, uh, business types and doctors and others that are educated somewhere else we're uh, we're uh, really serving ourselves because we can. We're we're rich countries because he he was knocked by the Alberta Premier for a stand on immigration, but that's where he was coming from on that. Now I benefit myself from having a a foreign doctor, and I'd be an hypocrite to say that uh, I, I kind of like that uh, that that we we can get them, but I do understand what his point is. You wish to comment? Well, I mean. Th- I don't know if the province has a whole lot of wiggle room for approach or policy on this front. We are up against it. You know, just imagine, we had apparently some assistance from Ireland when it came to learning uh, best practices based after their medical system was cyber-attacked. Now here we are trying to poach from an already stressed system in their country. You know, immigration, I think, is a bigger conversation than beyond healthcare workers, because there's obviously a lot to that. Um... You know, there's four different silos. It's attracting skills, it's political refugees, it's refugees general. There's lots of different angles inside immigration where I don't think there's even a catch-all answer to your question, to be answer, uh, to your questions, to be honest with you, because it all comes with different issues. You know, a skilled, trained professional who's filling a gap here is probably a little bit of a different conversation than someone running for the very life who finds refugee status here, fast-tracked or otherwise. So not really sure how to answer that question. If it's specifically about healthcare workers, I don't think we have a choice. I mean, my family, for the most part, in particular my father, 
He had an Indian-born doctor for the most of his adult life who was a terrific, compassionate, uh, the epitome of a professional, terrific doctor, kind to the family, did yeoman service for me, my father, my family, and many other thousands of New Flanders Labradorians. So I'm not really sure if I'm getting to your question, but I think they're all kind of different circumstances. Okay, uh, the the California thing, I, I don't know if you, 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 you yes, I, I do know, you've been following it. They've got 58 counties in California. Over half of them are declared disaster zones. So we can say probably half of California. And uh, this is through the flooding. Of course, they don't have enough water in many areas mostly, so they suffer from drought. Then they get too much water. And then, of course, the erosion where the forests have been burned down. It's a real, real mess. And people kind of predict, not predicted, said this would be a factor. This would happen uh, way back in the 90s. But apparently the uh, the Republicans in the states, uh, I guess they're waiting for their own houses to be swept away there before they'll, they'll move on that. And the last comment I want to make is, one of your callers feels like he can come on and denigrate people on the air. He called a fisherman's guy basically a dirtbag. And this comment that I read recently, uh, I read it a long time ago, would probably apply. Small minds talk about other people. Average minds talk about events. Superior minds talk about ideas. And uh, I leave I leave that to for him to uh, digest. I don't think anybody should be coming on the air and calling other people dirtbags when they they basically can't respond. And uh, but they can they can call. I'm not well, I'm not big on the. But they shouldn't they shouldn't have to call. You know, I think that's way that's way over the line. But but that's Charlie, haven't you spent a fair amount of time denigrating I, certain professions I, I, in this I, province? I'm sorry? Haven't you spent a, a fair amount of time criticizing and denigrating certain uh, walks of life and curriculum yes. creation and stuff on the show? Yes, I have, and, and I'll continue to, to do that. But when you get into a personality attacking the, uh, the, the, the person, their character, and so on, that's a lot different than, than, than talking about ideas and so on and disagreeing with what people uh, uh, have said. That's, I, 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 I could be wrong, but I think that's what I've done uh, always on this program. Yes, I've mentioned brought up people, but not about their characters, I don't think. But anyway. But moral failing, failings is a character flaw, isn't it? <laughs> well... Sure. I mean, I have no problem with it. Most of the type of criticism, I do get a bit uh, cringy when I hear people go to certain lengths and the words they use. I try to do my best to keep this on a, a, a relatively level-headed playing field. It's difficult sometimes to say the very least, but, you know, some people... When people go too far, I try to step in just on my own personal perspective because it's not I'm not here to police the world. I am here to allow people to share their opinions. Sometimes they're based in facts. Sometimes they're based in ridiculousness. Sometimes they're based in nonsense. Sometimes they're simply based in opinion and perspective. So it's a, it's a, a juggling act to sit here, but I don't dispute your fact that when we get right to ad hominems as the only course of reaction and the only approach to discourse, we're probably not getting very far. There's certainly no debate or conversation to be had when it's simply about slinging mud of a personal nature because that is a conversation ender. That's a debate ender before anything gets going. 
It, it just is. It's very much akin to things I've said many times over the years. If we're talking about immigration, for instance, and if someone dare question immigration, whether it be on safety, security, knowing who they are, where they come from, uh, where they're going to live, how they're going to get a house, access to health care, when people ask legitimate questions about those types of things, it does not make you inherently a racist. So those are the type of conversation starters and stoppers, pardon me, that I think just derail any pragmatic, progressive, uh, not progressive, any pragmatic conversations with some actual legitimate outcomes, sharing of ideas. It's just a waste of freaking time. So, you know, I try my level best not to be part of that conversation, not to be that person, because I find it to be counterproductive, unhelpful, uh, pretty much a waste of time. And those three things in conjunction make this show not what it's supposed to be. I think you, I think on the whole, you handle it very well. I'm just saying that uh, as a caller, if someone was to come on and say that about me and uh, I, I left it, it was left at that rather than what I'm saying, my ideas, uh, I, would, I would question if I would, if I would come on and take that kind of thing. Uh, there was a guy came on with, with uh, that fellow used to be on Dragon's Den, the uh, bald-headed guy, uh, real conservative. Kevin uh, O'Leary. Yeah, yeah. He was on with uh, a, a guy, I forget his name now, he was a, he was a liberal guy from the States, and uh, when it was over, uh, the announcer said, uh, well, thank you for coming. He said, I won't be back having to put up with that kind of... Because O'Leary was, was doing exactly that. He was attacking the personality, call him, calling him a, 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 a nutcase and so on, right? And I thought that at, at, at the time, that was... Uh, he said, basically, I don't have to take this, you know. But anyway, I agree with you, and uh, I, I, as I said, I think you, uh, you do well with cutting people off like that. But I thought that was a case there that was way above the top. But anyway... Appreciate the time, Charlie. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Today's a good day to get on. Rob's in the queue to talk about vehicle inspections, recalls, and then we'll speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Rob, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you doing today? Not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing? I'm... I'm just calling, like, um, so my uh, better half there had a recall on her Honda Ridgeline, um, stating there might be something wrong with the cross member. Um, so now she went in there, she's got it in there, and um, they said they're going to have to put the vehicle down. Like, it can't, it can't move anymore. Um. So what does that mean? There's a recall, so they've identified a problem. They should, when issuing a recall, have replacement parts in play. So how they does that how does that end up in putting the vehicle down, whatever that means? So I guess they, they, it won't be roadworthy ever again. Is that what that means? Well, that's that's what they're telling her. Okay. They say they can't get the parts in. It's it's um, a complete mess. Now there's nothing wrong with this vehicle. Okay, we I've. She's. It's a 2013, um, and you know, there's nothing wrong with the vehicle. Um, every dealership we've gone to has always tried to say, "Oh yeah, no, you need this done, this done. You need gaskets changed. You need this changed, this changed." But it's not that. I'm a 
sort of backyard mechanic, if you want to call it. But um, no, there is nothing being wrong with this vehicle. And um, I just like to know how, like, you know, she's paid for this vehicle. She's still paying on it. Okay. And um, so what are they going to give her? They're going to give her a couple thousand dollars. And then she's got a fucking refinance. Well, hey, watch, watch the language. Excuse my language. Okay, so language. when it comes to that, look, I, I don't know. It's one thing for a, an auto manufacturer to put out a recall, but not have the ability to actually execute the recall, replace the part, whatever it is in question. So I don't know. And you mentioned being a backyard mechanic. Gone are the days where backyard mechanics can really work on today's what are, in, in essence, computers on wheels. Specialized no, sensor treatments, specialized tools that are needed to do a bunch of what used to be very fundamental backyard-type repairs. You know, people can still do some stuff, but there's a lot of specialization inside the automobile world these days where it's really hard to do anything but rely on your dealer. So where the, this lands, I, I mean, I don't know. So you mentioned a couple of thousand dollars. Is that what they've assessed as so-called trade value for what is left of that rig? Yeah, yeah. but what I'm saying, it's a cross-member. It's, it's not electronic. It's a cross-member okay. that goes across the front of the vehicle. Yeah, it's part of the okay. suspension. Okay, I get it. it it's, it's, it's not a big deal. It's a couple bolts and a new cross-member. Okay. Um, that they say. You know, and I just I just don't trust these guys because everything is now is electronic, like you said. And these people sit there and they go to the dealerships, and the dealerships say, "No, you got to do this," which it it not it's not realistic. Can, just, can you I'm take just, the vehicle just, back? Well, that's that's what I'm hoping. Like she just brought it in this morning. And uh, so I'm, 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 I want to go down there and say, okay, you guys show me what to do. Or, or show me what's wrong. Or, or go to a garage that is not a dealer and take your vehicle. Yeah. Well, of course, Honda would have a better opportunity to get Honda parts versus anyone who's an independent uh, garage. But if you have that level of concern, that's what I would do. I'd say, okay, just give me the keys. And I'd take it, and I'd park it to what, at whatever garage and cross my fingers, hope they get the part sooner than later to get the rig back on the road. Because obviously, if it's unsafe because whatever the problem is with the cross member, and I don't know what that is, or what the problem would be, and the jeopardy to anybody's safety or the roadworthiness of the vehicle, but that's all I would do. I would just go take my rig. It's yeah, yours. And, 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 but that's, that's the problem here now because everybody's going, you know, oh, these guys are supposed to be professionals, but... It, you know, you're just not getting the service, really. They're just saying, oh, no, we'll just write this off. They just want to write her vehicle off. And it's uh, it's not it's not true. We've driven it from Fort McMurray to here. Um, it, it's got some good mileage on it. It drives great. There's no problems with it. We keep up with the brakes. We keep up with all the maintenance. And... Um, yeah, no, they just want to defunct it and say it's no good for rural. Yeah, I don't think they get the final say on that front. It certainly wouldn't if it was my vehicle. So that's all I would do. Now, you'll do as you see fit, of course, but I would just go take it. And I'd find someone else who's in the repair business that has the certification as a Honda, uh, the ability to service a Honda. I'd get them to order the part, replace it, and hopefully that takes sooner than it would later. Yeah, I just want to throw that out there because I, I know there's... You know, there's more than one person out there. 
um, that's, you know, dealing with this stuff here. They're, you know, they're just writing vehicles off because of this willy-nilly stuff that they, they don't want to put an extra couple bolts in or, you know, do a couple things like that. Like, you know, keep your vehicle. I've had mine, I have had mine 20 years now, and it's still running fine. I'd love to get 20 years out of mine. Don't think it's going to happen. But, uh, yeah, there's also on the subject line here, beyond recalls, it also said vehicle inspections, which I think is an interesting topic because yep. you and I all know, the motoring public knows, that there are a lot of vehicles on the road that should not be out there. They absolutely should not be on the road. They're jeopardizing the safety of the person driving it and everybody else's consequently. So the thought is that we have, you know, some whatever it be a number of kilometers on the odometer and or the uh, age of the vehicle for an inspection. Now, one school Every of thought says, years. yeah, I've I got no problem with it personally, but many people will say, well, that's just a tax grab or pardon me, a cash grab. That would be just good for the industry, no good for me. Why would I have to go get my vehicle <laughs> inspected when I just had it serviced at the dealer? There's nothing wrong with it, but because I've had it for 10 years and it's got 120,000 kilometers, I am forced to pay whatever it is, 100, 150 bucks for an inspection. I get that thought. But ultimately, for our collective best interest, roadworthy vehicles on the road versus the numbers out there that should not be on the road is probably a good thing. Now, how do you balance that between cash grab and public safety? I don't know. But we've been hashing that around for years. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I agree. Like like I said, every five years, everybody's vehicle should be inspected. And if you don't pass the inspection, you don't get your registration. It's pretty simple. I appreciate the time. This is from a mechanic uh, who follows along and thankfully shares his expertise. There's criteria for frame rot for them to condemn the vehicle. Okay, so if it's met that threshold and they can tell you, well, here's exactly why, and explain it in layman's terms. Here's why this vehicle can no longer be considered roadworthy and put back on the road, and you can take it from there. Because if there's simply a, re- a re- recall with a replacement part that will cure the ill, and it's not rotted frame then that's a, the i guess the course of action that i would take that type of conversation explain to me exactly why this can't be done and if you say it can't be done i'm going to get an independent inspection and see if a garage can put this repair in place so i can get my rig back on the road so other than that i'm not sure what to tell you rob yeah no i, I like i said like you know it the, the 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 vehicle was bought in alberta yep um so we have no salt out there to speak of so there was there was no rot there was no nothing. Um, we moved back to Newfoundland uh, two and a half years ago um, and had complete undercoating done. There was no problems there. So now they're saying they're going to have to put the vehicle down. Uh, I'm just... Um, and, and it's not a racehorse. That's a funny way for them to put it. Um, that's what I would do. I would have that extended conversation as to rationale, as to why. And if you think that's not good enough for you, then I take the car back. That's it. Yeah, and then go from okay, there. Okay, thanks, buddy. I just I just wanted to bring that out there that you know for other people out there, you know, don't don't let the don't let the um, people tell you that this is the best thing to do. I just simply ask more questions. Dave Williams asked me to put you on hold, so I'll do that. Rob, you'll speak with Dave here again now. Okay. Okay. Thanks. All right. You're welcome. Bye bye. I mean that argument about inspections, I think, is worthwhile. Because you've seen it as much as I have. Just think about it. Whether it be in the metro region where there's a pretty high congestion of vehicles, there's tons out there that are simply not safe. They're not. 
you can tell I'm not a mechanic and I haven't been under the hood or under the car, but you can tell full well that they're just not safe. Now, would we be able to cure that with whatever determined length of time or age of vehicle or kilometers on the odometer would require an inspection? Proof that it is indeed roadworthy and safe for you and for everyone else around you? I completely understand when people say, no, we're just creating another cash grab. But how do you strike that particular, you know, the word we use so much these days, the balance between avoiding unnecessary cash grabs? For instance, if I just had a service at the dealer and the dealer came up with no indication that there's any other repairs needed to make that vehicle safe, maybe then I get an exemption from that so-called annual or five-year window inspection. But more has to be done to haul these rigs off the road that shouldn't be out there. Then it brings me to the whole issue regarding this digital insurance validation program. I know why people get a little bit stressed out about the compilation of data, the dissemination of data by the government. But inside of that world, if the intended goal, and I'm not so sure it's even going to work as it's articulated by the department, the minister responsible, but if the end result is fewer people on the road with uninsured rigs, that's a good thing, right? We lead the league in claims in Atlantic Canada, here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Apparently, we're amongst the league leaders, if not the league leader, in the number of uninsured vehicles on the road. The guesstimate is that it's somewhere between 3 and 7% which is not a healthy, safe landscape, considering that not only are we the number one uh, league leader in claims and payouts, we're the number one leader in insurance premiums. So some way to fix that, if there's such a fix actually available, would be pretty important. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, a bunch of people chiming in on that gentleman's concerns with his now-to-be-potentially-condemned rig now, apparently, there was a full generation of that particular manufacturer's uh, hybrid, what do we call them? Anyway, they've got a bunch of their vehicles that they've had an issue with rotting frames, especially in places with salty environments, much like around here, but much different than, I guess, uh, if he said he had it up in Fort McMurray for the most of its life. And having lived in Alberta, there's an awful lot of places where they don't use salt on the road simply because of the amount of wildlife. So they actually put salt licks in off of the shoulders of the road so that as opposed to the elk being in the middle of the road licking up the road salt, they've got them in with a cow lick, a salt lick, somewhere well into the bush for their salt intake. And in the world of automobiles, and it's a huge industry, Bob talked about he wasn't too high on the fact that there's going to be a $400 million facility built in the province of Quebec, dealing with the manufacture of electric vehicle batteries. And, of course, a decision made by General Motors and their South Korean partners, I think it's called POSCO. There has been some moves made in the auto industry, in particular about automobile parts, as part of what people refer to colloquially as the Three Amigos meetings. Of course, the Prime Minister and the Presidents of both Mexico and the United States. So they're meeting at this moment in time, and there's always some pretty important stuff on the agenda. And a big one for us... And there's, you know, curiously, we think about our relationship with the Americans as the be-all and end-all, as trade partners, what have you. But we also do a lot of business in Mexico, and Mexico does a lot of business here. So the auto parts issue was massive. Remember when there was a renegotiation of NAFTA? And it was a pretty heavy-handed experiment, and when we came out the other side, there was apparently enough gray area in the language surrounding North American content for building vehicles and where the auto parts come from and the total components of North American parts in the finished product of an automobile to 
be able to eliminate or to avoid paying a tariff. The Americans had a very, very strict, tough interpretation of those rules. So it was challenged in court by both Mexico, or I guess at a tribunal, uh, both Mexico and Canada signed on to their, uh, their suit as well. The decision has been known by the players for weeks, but just announced yesterday at the meeting between the three representatives, of course, Canada, Mexico, and the United States. So the Mex- Mexicans and the Canadians... Our interpretation, our want for that NAFTA business regarding auto parts was the victor. It's kind of interesting that we were able to beat the United States at their own game, of course, with the, I'll call it just, you know, the biggest bully on the block when it comes to these types of things. So the representatives of both Mexico and Canada think that this ruling is a big deal. Had it gone the way of the Americans and so much protectionism involved with their want to renegotiate NAFTA and even change in the, the name of the trade deal for the most ridiculous reasons so now that ruling has been made and the people representing this country think this is a big deal the par the car park qualifies as north american because 85 percent of the subcomponents come from this continent and under that pact and that interpretation they face no tariff so it's a bit more of a generous or a laxed read of those particular rules regarding auto parts when we all know in this country we have certainly lost some auto manufacturing capacity A lot of it has fled to Mexico in particular, but the auto parts business is still massive in Canada. Absolutely massive, employs thousands of people, and has huge contribution to economies of scale where these auto parts manufacturers are housed. So apparently that one worked out in our favor. Now, the Americans, of course, fighting back with their thoughts that this is going to alienate investment and see more and more of these manufacturers, whether it be for the end result of the product, the vehicle rolling off the assembly line, and or the contribution of various parts coming from North American producers. But apparently that's a victory for us at this, what they call the Three Amigos meeting, which I'm not really sure that's the greatest tag to hang on it, but there we are. Uh, Lots of reaction to the fact that there's always going to be the case when we talk healthcare and the most recent updated numbers from narrative research relating to how many people in the province don't have a family doctor. We heard and we commented on it on this program when the province put out their numbers of uh, doctors and healthcare professionals that have been attracted to the province based on a variety of things. Some of the different incentives and lures that were put out there, whether it be as a result of the Calm Home Year initiative, which meant that if you were born here, and or had any medical training here as any discipline in healthcare, there was big numbers dangled for bonus checks for you to come back to the province and set up shop. What the province did not include when they talked about the numbers of people, healthcare workers that came, in particular doctors, is just how many left. So we went from 125,000 people in the province without access to a family doctor, and the most recent numbers reflect an 8% increase in that number to 136,000. So you couple that with some of the ongoing issues that we have talked about ad nauseum and the fact that there's been recruitment recruitment efforts abroad dealing with a country that experiences just about the exact same healthcare woes that we have in this province, that being the country of Ireland, and to know that we're fighting the good fight against our own compatriots, our own provincial neighbors. You know, in one discipline, I'm pretty sure this was on respiratory therapists, the province of Nova Scotia got in front of our pending grads Dangled a 20% higher rate of pay, relocation supports to move to Nova Scotia to practice, when at the exact same time we're facing a shortage. So whether it be attention to local, whether it be trying to outsmart or outfox some of the countries or different provinces to try to fill the gaps here because the gaps are growing. 
I was surprised. I admit to being a little bit surprised here. I would have thought it would have been stable numbers, maybe even a decrease in the numbers of people without a family doctor. But to know that it's grown, and you hear from Chris Luscombe, who's the head of the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, and he's talking about this being, you know, a step forward with a shared agenda with the province and the department. But the crisis, if it was a crisis before we got these numbers, well, then it's even more so now. All right, we did indeed, off the top of the program, again, talk about food, food security, food production, and what the new technology associated with hydroponics means. There's already people in the province who are utilizing that technology and growing lots of greens, in particular the folks at Green Farm NL. Scott Neri is doing exactly that. He looks at the potential to add to production if you had something like the Canopy Growth Facility, and it's 230,000 square foot. Now, some of that is storage and office space, what have you. It's not all for growing, but Scott Neri knows more about it than me, probably more about it than you. He's in the queue to talk about what the future looks like for that type of technology to deal with local production. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the CEO at Green Farm NL. That's Scott Neri. Good morning, Scott. You're on the air. Hey, folks. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here and talking about... uh Food security, as always. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's something I'm really interested in. Admittedly, I don't know a whole lot about it, certainly some of the new technologies. But are you a Portugal Cove, Neri? Yeah, yeah, I am, actually. <laughs> Grew up yeah. in Portugal Cove. Yeah, me too. Oh, well, family's from uh, the Cove, Neri's Pond Road. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Scott, before we get into what it looks like for advancing other facilities, whether it be Canada, be growth or otherwise, give us an idea what you guys do at Green Farm. Yeah, so we're here in uh, in Sagona Avenue, Mount Pearl, and we basically converted uh, a part office building, part warehouse into an indoor greenhouse. Um, so really, this is a concept I've been chasing for, for many years, past the three years we've been operating. Um, as when I was in engineering school, I saw, hey, this is... There's solutions out there to to producing basically any food that you want year round, and uh, the province that I'm from really needs this. So, uh, about ten years ago, I started researching it, and and really what we're doing here is, is showing a concept and and proving the case that indoor farming is, is now viable in Newfoundland, uh, whereas maybe it wasn't before. Uh, not only is it viable, it's economically feasible, and 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 all the technical problems we're here showing uh, how to how to get past the technical problems and how to make this work. We talk about these, I'll call a traditional approach to farming, and some of the input costs that we've seen with food, uh, fuel, fertilizer, and what that's meant. Have you had a similar impact with indoor growing? Actually, not really. Okay. Um, because because the big thing is, you know, we're, we're not out using, uh, you know, massive uh, fossil fuel burning equipment in terms of tractors and killing equipment and, and harvesters and, uh, you know, pesticide spraying equipment and all that. Uh, so fuel doesn't really come into our cost too much. So as fuel prices rise, that doesn't really affect us too much. Um, and, and there's there's a bunch of other things like we're we're not having to to clear land and stuff. And now I know there's a lot of empty land already in Newfoundland, but uh, there's a lot of ways that it's different in in what our inputs are, and that kind of keeps us safer from supply chain issues in a lot of cases, and helps us uh, avoid inflation and things like that, and try to keep prices stable for people. What are you producing, and where does it find a home? 
Um, so right now we're producing a large range of things. We're doing all kinds of leafy greens from lettuce, kale, spinach, arugula, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, in terms of herbs, we're doing like basil, cilantro, dill, parsley, uh, thyme, oregano, basically a whole, a whole load of different things um, to kind of prove that, hey, this is possible, that's possible, that's possible. Um, and uh, 80% of our business is actually home delivery. So through our website, we actually uh, deliver to the entire Metro St. John's area. Uh, in both subscription orders and one-time orders as well. So we go straight to consumer, we produce at our farm and and deliver straight to your door. Any different technology being utilized at Green Farm versus what we think is actually inside this $90 million facility on the White Hills? Um, I mean, our operation was kind of built on a shoestring budget. So, I mean, ours is is very simple and, uh, you know, just tossed together. Uh, But the the facility, the canopy, or the, the... ex-canopy facility that is basically a state-of-the-art um you know hydroponic facility whether you're using it for marijuana or for food uh and it's not just state-of-the-art for like around here that's probably one of the nicest hydroponic facilities in the world um and it's it's sitting empty yeah we know it's 230,000 square feet but of course that's not all growing space uh, the growing space is somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 81 82,000 square feet other would be storage and office space and what have you if you had your druthers and the required uh, partners, is that even a facility that someone, say, with your scale of operation, your knowledge of the industry, could step in and take over? Or what would it take for that to be utilized for food production here? Now, we, you know, we can't deal with the hypotheticals what Canopy is going to do in the future. But let's just say it was available to be taken by the province, uh, individuals like yourself, partnerships. What would it look like? Yeah, I mean, it's very viable. Uh, the first thing I want to say, with, with the plummeting price of marijuana as, uh, you know, more and more product uh, floods the market, it's less and less likely that someone's going to, uh, a marijuana company is going to come in and pay all that money for, for that facility either. Uh, but, you know, if you were going at this from a, a, a food production perspective, um, I think it would. There's a couple of ways you could do it. Uh, the whole building doesn't need to be operational all at once. It's actually segregated into smaller rooms. Uh, you probably couldn't just turn on one of 30 odd rooms. You might have to do like 10 or eight or whatever. Um, but you could get started in small amounts, prove the case, start start growing things, and, and you know as those things find their market and as you're proving the concept, you could grow into the building and continue. Uh, that's how I could see one person doing it, um, and and I think it's very viable with the right funding, and it's actually fairly easy based on the way the building is. Um, but I also think there could be an opportunity, you know, in a scenario if the government was to say, hey, let's let's try to get involved and and hold a lease on this thing. I think there could be some value in taking those thirty individual rooms and leasing them out uh, to to different farmers and then kind of create a co-op where everyone's kind of growing different things and trying different stuff in the room and, uh, and creating, you know, a, a concise and, uh, and collaborative food production uh, kind of operation. Uh, not to get into your books because I'm not your accountant, but do you have a profitable operation at Green Farm? We're just hitting three years now, and yeah, now we're hitting the point, you know, where we've hit critical volume that we had to hit of a certain amount of sales to, to start generating positive revenue. And yeah, after three years on a basically non-existent budget, we are, we're now turning a profit. Um, 
So for us, you know, we've done this, like I said, with very little money. So we know that not only with bigger size could we do more, but with proper equipment and economies of scale and, you know, proper investment in this stuff rather than, you know, some some cheap things that I'm throwing together just to prove the concept. So we're hoping now that we, we've proven what's possible uh, technically um, and, and, and its economic feasibility. So I think all that remains to, to push indoor farming ahead is, is more political will. Technical, uh, overcoming technical issues is one thing. Are there any specific government policies or levels of bureaucracy that make it less attractive to try to start up your own operation similar to Green Farm anywhere else in the province? Oh, absolutely. Um, I would think uh, so. That's why I asked. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's extremely difficult doing anything new in Newfoundland. You know, it's uh, we're always the last to adopt te- uh, technology and the first ones to suffer from not doing so. Um, so basically, you know, the government will talk about all this funding that they're putting out um, uh, to facilitate uh, farming. But as of right now, um, indoor farming is, is not part of the infrastructure. Um, so we're not really technically eligible. Sometimes we're able to, to fight our way into getting some funding. But we're not technically eligible for these things because we're not even considered, you know, within the framework of these things. Um, Everything from funding to even insurance that they provide to conventional farmers, we're not eligible for because it doesn't it doesn't go year round. Um, So there's no infrastructure right now at all for indoor farmers. um, And uh, and there doesn't seem to be any will to, to try to push that forward. And even when I see data come out about. Uh, how much food we're producing locally. I mean, they're not including the the two indoor, two or more indoor farms in Newfoundland at all. Not only are we not a part of the conversation, we're not a part of the data. Um, so that just kind of shows that there's really not much of a, a will to push this forward. And to me, I think this is the best solution we have um, to, to fighting food security in a reasonable amount of time. Any thoughts as to why that would be the case? Because there's a big political victory here, whether it be with traditional farming or indoor farming, hydroponics, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just, you know, a case of, again, Newfoundland always being resistant to new things and uh, and just loving to suffer. Um, but, you know, it's it's just... You know, I, I do understand from a perspective that, you know, the, these government departments only have so much money and they haven't been given money to research these things and they don't really know what indoor farming is or vertical farming is. So how do they police it if they don't understand it? Um, so I, I think that the department itself needs to go through a change where, where they do become educated on these things and learn how much of a priority that it should be if we do want to create food security in Newfoundland in a reasonable amount of time. And that's important because the longer we go without creating food security, uh, the more our people are going to suffer in the long run. Um, we've, we've got decades of warming to come, uh, global warming, which means decades of increasingly bad storms. Uh, and we've already had a lot of damage on one of our main ports that our food comes in on. So that's just one reason why we need to be moving faster because food system collapse is on the horizon and, and, and we should be very, very concerned about it. And some of the numbers I think might be a little bit misleading too, right? You know, we only produce 10% of what we consume, which I think is pretty much a large retailer number as opposed to every bit of food grown, whether it be at your operation, which you said you're not part of the data, let alone the conversation, and or backyard farms or homesteads, which we have to have a better idea of where we are as opposed to rely on that 90-10 number all the time. Uh, Can you elaborate on vertical farming? 
Yeah, so what vertical farming does is, um, well, indoor farming is a pretty simple concept. We've probably seen pictures of, you know, big hydroponic uh, units in, in indoors before and in greenhouses. What vertical farming does, it, it, it doesn't just use a, a flat plane of growing. It doesn't just grow two dimensions. It uses that third dimension. So you're stacking towers or you're stacking layers and layers vertically in a space to make more out of the space. And really, you can go as high as you want, as high as your building is, without having to, to take up more and more land. Um, so this allows us to fit a lot more, uh, up to 10 times more product as a conventional greenhouse or indoor farm when you're vertical farming. And then indoor farming in general also has a big density increase over outdoor farming as well. So we're talking about huge, huge densities here. And when you're indoors in a controlled environment, we can simulate any climate from around the world, which means we can grow the crops from basically any climate around the world. Um, so as far as what we grow, uh, more so just depends on what the market needs and, and what's expensive or hard to find here. But, I mean, we could grow a palm tree if we wanted. We could really grow anything. That's amazing you said palm tree because I was just thinking, I wonder, can you grow a palm tree? Um, yeah. <laughs> I can't even believe we just had that same train of thought. Uh, just a couple of quick ones because I know you're busy, man. Insofar as price point, after production and distribution, are you competitive with some of the mega farms? And Because we know the world has changed. We've lost so many family farms in this province. It's mind-boggling. It's staggering numbers of loss. How, do, how competitive are you on price point? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that also comes with scale. So right now we're at the lowest scale possible. Um, and our pricing is still competitive with what you're seeing in the grocery stores. Not only that, uh, in a lot of cases, we're delivering it straight to people's doors. In some cases, that delivery is even free. Um, so not only is our pricing competitive, um, our product is longer lasting, better tasting, better looking. Uh, and one big thing that people don't know about in Newfoundland, it seems, um, the longer your food has been cut and is in transit, the more nutrients you're losing. So if food is on a truck for two weeks, even if it looks okay, most of that nutrient is actually broken down. So even if you're spending a lot of money on uh, fancy imported produce, there might actually be very little nutrient left in that because of the long transport. So we have more nutrient, you know, better everything for a similar cost. And, and the big thing is when we do scale, we're going to be able to undercut the, the imports. Um, so not only, you know, we'll be cheaper and better in every way and, and undermine all the imports, um, which is something we're excited for. Yeah, and I mean, things like partners with Food for Sanel, trying to get local produce into hospitals, long-term care facilities, schools, goes a long way to addressing the competitive nature of it. Last one, I promise. I probably oversimplify these things. When I say that municipalities, the province, private sector, uh, champions of food security, if we don't do everything we can to encourage reasonable and practical approaches to backyard farming, homesteading, greenhouses, hydroponics, clearing traditional land for, you know, whether it be root vegetables all the way to cattle. It seems to me it's there to be grabbed. Not sure why we're as slow to deal with some of these matters. The province will boast that there's been some doubling of certain products being grown here in the province, but am I oversimplifying it by saying we can indeed pepper the landscape with facilities like yours, with some seed money from government or what have you, to understand backyard farming and homesteading to maximize those potentials? Because people want to take that bull by the horns as well, because we all feel the pressures walking into a grocery store. Do I oversimplify, or are we sort of on the right track by talking about it like this? No, I think that's absolutely right. And I want to be clear as an indoor vertical farmer, I don't think we should only be doing this. I think 
every step forward we can make in conventional farming and backyard farming is super, super important as well. But this, this is a cultural shift that you're talking about creating. And a cultural shift doesn't happen that fast. It happens very, very slowly. Um, so at that rate, I mean, I think we could achieve food security without vertical farming, but at the rate, it, it would be a really, really, really long time, uh, which is concerning because there'll be a lot of pain in between now and then. So, I mean, the biggest thing is the government recently was celebrating that they increased our food production from 10% of demand to 20% of demand in five years, and it was this big celebration, uh, or at least it seemed to be in their press release. But when you really look at that, that's 2% a year. And if we have 80% left to go, that's 40 years left if we're to continue that rate, uh, which is the highest rate we've <laughs> had in a long time. So 40 years of food insecurity, 40 years of global warming, 40 years of you know potential wars with supply chain, uh, worsening storms. So this is why I think indoor farming needs to be there to supplement, because we can we can roll this out much, much faster. And then, you know, when conventional farming, you know, catches up, we can roll some of that back, maybe, if that makes sense. But 40 years is, is far too long for us to reach uh, food security. And I think if we went all in on uh, indoor farming, we could do it in 12 years or less. Uh, I lied about last one. For, to grow at the scale that you envision, does that, can it be satisfied with a domestic market or would that need to see some sort of export opportunities? We would primarily focus on local product. Um, I mean, exports all well and good, but the purpose of Green Farm is to create um, create food security in Newfoundland, um, including Labrador. We'd love to get over to Labrador at some point. But then once we're done there, you know, if, if you know we're done with Newfoundland and we hit food security, we're going to go across Canada to other places that struggle with food security and basically just show up, create food security while the rest of the production uh, catches up over decades and decades. And, and really, we just we want to create food security. <laughs> it's the main thing. Great to have you on the show, Scott. Appreciate your perspective and your expertise, and good luck to you and the crowd, the crowd at Green Farm NL. Thanks so much for having us, and thanks for uh, talking about this important uh, case. I think it's a bit of a crisis that is undervalued right now. Terrific. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Scott Neri, CEO at Green Farm NL. Man, the opportunities are there. They are. I mean, you just heard it right from the horse's mouth. The person's on the ground, know exactly what they're talking about. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Let's take a moment to the CEO at Edgewise Environmental. That's Ashley Noseworthy. Hi, Ashley. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. So we're going to talk North Atlantic right whales. There's a guesstimate out there that there's fewer than 350 of these white white right whales remaining. So having an eye on the calving season is a big deal. What are we seeing this year? Uh, we posted an article yesterday. So Canada and the United States have a really good relationship when it comes to monitoring for right whales. Uh, and right now, down in the United States, they're reporting the 11th calf that's been born this year. So that's a really big deal to have 11 already. And we're hoping for uh, a few more before they start moving up the eastern seaboard where we might start to see them um, in and around our waters. How does that number compare with uh, the recent past? Um, it, it's, it's relatively high, um, compared 
to some of the years. I mean, last year uh, there was 15. The year before, this last year was in 2022, 2021, there was 20. So hopefully the, the mature females are on track to reach or exceed those numbers. So calving season is from when to when? Uh, so in general, when we think about whales, we think cold to feed, warm to breed. Uh, so when they leave here, they go down. And generally, it's around anywhere from kind of December, January um, to February or to April-ish. Okay. So in the world, if we're guesstimating that there's 350 of these North Atlantic right whales, any idea how many, I don't know the right way to put this, breeding females, active females are out there? Yeah, that's that's actually a really good question, and they do uh, they do know how many active females there are. Um, I'd have to look at my numbers, so I don't have that right off the top of my head. But I think what's really interesting is of those three fifty. Of course, we can assume that let's let's just say half, but we'd have to check. Um, but what's really interesting is that they have to reach about ten years to be mature before they can reproduce. Um, and then it takes a year, of course, in gestation before they produce a baby. Um, but what they're seeing right now is that they're not having babies uh, for seven to ten years. So they might have a baby and then they might wait seven to ten years before they actually give birth again. Um, and so that's a really long period of time in between. And when we consider some of the pressures that are North Atlantic right whales face, um, that those are some of the issues um, when it comes to monitoring their population size. Yeah, so maybe if half were females and half were active active breeders, so 75. I'll just take a, a sure. ball guess. Yeah. Okay. The right whale has been a big conversation. And when we talk about whether it be unexpected mortality or unusual, I can't remember the tag they place on it. But like in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, they decrease mm -hmm. the rate of speed with which uh, ships are allowed to proceed. Then yeah. there's the change in fishing gear. So, you know, this has come with a lot of complications with whether or not how we label seafood, whether it be crab or lobster coming from our waters, whether it be with the type of fishing gear that they're going to be allowed to use, when in fact we have seen very few off our coast, and they've been a bit infrequent, and notably we've never had a right whale uh, be entangled with fishing gear and die off our provincial waters. So what are we seeing? Are those changing? Because our harvesters have been subjected to issues regarding fishing gear and the labeling of crab and, uh, and lobster. So what are we seeing, real realistically speaking, off our shores? Off of our shores in Newfoundland, <clears throat> North Atlantic right whales are not overly common. Um, and so when we do see them, it's a really big deal. We've had a number of them reported, whether it was in Twillingate um, or this year, we had some reported off of Cape Spear. Uh, and DFO keeps a very close tabs on those sightings and takes them very seriously. Not only is it kind of outside of the time when we would expect, but because they are so rare with less than 350 in the world, that's a really important sighting. When it comes to how humans interact with North Atlantic right whales, that topic is kind of quite high and contentious, especially in and around the Gulf of St. Lawrence, um, because that's really where your North Atlantic right whales congregate the most. Um, and so what we're seeing in there is a lot of conversation around some of those things that you've brought up. So whether it's unusual mortality events, whether it's slowdown areas, it's new fishing gear, it's technology, there has to be really good communication and collaboration between the fishing industry, scientists, technology developers 
to try and help this population um, kind of grow and be sustainable. It's always fascinating to me when you have professionals who are monitoring animals in the wild, in their natural setting, and they can identify one gorilla from another and have them named. Same thing in the right whale business, as far as I can remember. What sort of tracking is being done of right whales to understand, you know, whether it be interaction or collisions with boats or fishing gear or migratory routes or what have you? So explain to us how that works, because we might see infrequent uh, sightings here, but that might be changing based on simply migratory route changes or the temperature of the water changes. So what kind of tracking is done? Yeah, you're spot on. So, you know, as the as the waters warm and change and as, as climate change kind of affects us more, we can possibly see these animals more, especially off of our coast. In order to identify them individually, there's lots of different programs. Um, but one of the main ways that they can tell individuals is the pattern of callosities. So I guess that's everybody's word of the day. Um, and if you look at a North Atlantic right whale, they kind of have these rough patches of skin and what looks like barnacles all over the front part of their head and their lower jaw. And those are a really unique, distinctive pattern specific to individuals. Um, and so as they develop that pattern of callosities, um, through aerial photography, through drone footage, through satellite imagery, they take pictures of these whales. Uh, and then all of a sudden now they put it into a big database. And between the United States and Canada, along the eastern seaboard, they can actually take a look and say, okay, well, this is this whale. And a lot of times they'll give them a number. And, for example, they'll also give them a name. So, for example, you know, number 4340 is called Pilgrim. Um, and uh, and the researchers know them quite well. So it's through a combination of drone footage, um, which they use. They take out boats, uh, and they use that, and satellite imagery as well. I don't know how to, uh, to craft this question for it to be as least stupid as it might end up being. Okay. <laughs> okay. So 350 North Atlantic right whales. When we talk about protecting and growing the numbers, how does that conversation look? Is it about their role in the ecosystem? Is it simply about ecosystem balance? Is it very specific issues? Or simply being mindful of the fact that so many species have become ex extinct in the last 50 years, that stemming that, that tide becomes scientifically and eco-balance important. So how does that look, and what is their role in the ecosystem? How, how should we understand that? I think it's important to understand that generally the bigger the animal in the ecosystem, the more energy it takes to, to sustain them. And if you have large animals in an ecosystem, it can indicate health. So because it takes so much energy, think about it in terms of a pyramid that if we were to sustain one right whale, think about all of the, you know, the, the krill it eats and, and all of the kind of things that need to sustain such a large animal, it's an indication of health. And so all of a sudden, if you have these populations declining, especially of these big animals, they don't always have to be apex predators, but these big animals, it's an indication that there could be something wrong in that particular pyramid. And there's a lot of different factors that go into that. So it could be perhaps that, you know, some of the lower parts of the pyramid and the food chain aren't doing well and then they can't sustain. And so that there's not enough food there. It can also be human interaction and impacts. So we use our oceans quite heavily. Um, and one of the big things that North Atlantic right whales are facing, of course, is potential gear entanglement um, as well as interactions with vessels. Um, and ship strikes. 
And so those are things that need to be monitored as well um, in order to make sure that, you know, that population can be sustained. So it's not a matter of just kind of hoping for the best. There are certain things that can be put in place, and it's kind of a due diligence and responsibility that if we want to use an ocean that we don't necessarily live in, um, but other animals do, that we want to steward that the best we can and try and make sure that there's room for both us and them uh, and that we make it as safe as possible. Is the rising sea temperature and the acidic nature of the ocean another perilous jeopardy for right whales? Um. I think it's I think it's a perilous jeopardy for all animals. Um, it's it's it can result in the movement of prey. It can result in the movement uh, and migratory patterns for different animals, which means that of course interactions can change. Um, so I don't know if we necessarily, and that's not necessarily my background, but as I read more and more on that, there can be some really big biodiversity changes that could come from rising sea temperatures and where animals might find themselves. Great to have you on the show, Ash. I really appreciate the time. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Ashley Noseworthy. She's the CEO of Edgewise Environmental. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Rick's there to talk about the prospects out at Bay de Nord, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Okay, let's go. Line number three, say good morning to Rick Farrell from Unifor Local 20. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, uh, Patty, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Okay, yes, well, we hope it's a Happy New Year for our workers down here on the Bjorn Peninsula, in Marystown in more particular. Uh, the Bay of Nord Project, as we know, uh, is still waiting for official sanctioning, and uh, right now the benefits agreement is being uh, hammered out between uh, both sides, the government and the uh, Equinor. So we need uh, work to come to the area. We've been successful before on many projects, starting with the Sea Rose, White Rose project back in 2003-2005. Uh, we had 11 modules, top sides built in Marystown, and we've had work up until the recent project, the living quarters for the West White Rose project. So we need work here in Marystown. Yeah, there's no doubt we do. The trick here is that we don't know when the business sanction is going to come. They say full steam ahead at Equinor. Their business model is break even at 35 bucks a barrel. But herein lies the rub. It's whether or not we understand exactly what's going on behind the scenes with Article 82 of that UN, that UNCLOS, UNCLOS. That's the royalty paid outside our protective, our economic protective zone. So that's going to impact this decision. Secondly, it's we don't even know what kind of work will be available. Whether it be topsides work here on land, how much work is going to be shipped off to whether it be Korea or to Texas. So even knowing what opportunities lie ahead is a moving target. Yes, that's all correct, but uh, at more than likely uh, this major oil project now with the transition to green energy will be the, probably the last major oil project uh, ever, and uh, our province uh, really should reap the benefits going forward. Uh, we have the workers here. Uh, we met with Darren King, the executive director uh, of uh, Trades Newfoundland, back in December. Our executive did, and I heard him yesterday, of course, on uh, 
the show with uh, Linda Swain, and uh, he made a lot of good points there uh, going forward, and we're at a critical stage once again. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we're here as Newfoundlanders. We want the work to come to Newfoundland. Of course, here as president of Local 20 Uniform in Marystown, we'd like some of the work to come to Marystown. But he should go to Bull Arm. He should go to Port of Basque out in, the, and in those areas in the province. No doubt about it. You know, there are some restrictions as to what we can and cannot do. For instance, True. if we were able to get every piece of work available, whether it be topsides work or otherwise, what is the kind of stuff that can't be done here? Because I think sometimes out there we have this thought that we have capacity to do every single thing involved with, whether it be a retrofitter, the FPSO for Terra Nova, and for dealing with whatever is going to be maybe two FPSOs, how to pay the Nord, you know, the size of laydown yards and that kind of stuff. What is absolutely unable to be done here, and what should absolutely be done here? If you can help them break it down for the understanding of me and the listener. Well, of course, we know right now that we uh, can't do the whole here, but the top sides we can. We've proved it time and time again in our history of all these oil and gas projects from Hibernia, Terra Nova, the White Rose, the Hebron, and the most recent West White Rose project, which will be hopefully ramped up again uh, here to spring. There's top sides and a commissioning work. We can do it here. We have the workers here uh, on the Bjorn Peninsula, Lunch Pale Brigade, uh, from Terrenceville to uh, Lord's Cove, all the points in between the Goobies. We have workers here tradesmen, tradeswomen, they can do absolutely anything. Yeah, the whole work, we understand. And the topsides work, uh, the work that the crowd here that was working on Hebron, I think we hit our target for budget and schedule. So that was a big success, and hopefully that can be incorporated into negotiations between the province and the proponent, the operator, in this case being Equinor. So, of course, everyone would like to maximize uh, job opportunities here because that's one thing to create uh, to harvest taxes from those working offshore and the royalties offshore and the onshore contribution, but it's those initial construction jobs just keeps momentum going. It keeps the people who are trained and experienced and qualified here because when they have these big hiccups and gaps between employment opportunities, that's sometimes when we see them leave, and sometimes they don't come back. Uh, good pointer, Petty. Uh, well, I'm saying right now today, uh, our Premier uh, uh, should be sitting down, listening to this very closely, and the Energy Minister, our local MHAs, everybody for that matter in the province that has a vested interest in getting this work and securing these most benefits for the province and for our areas. It might not be absolutely inside your ballywick at Local 20, but the job opportunities, whether it be with some of these wind proposals or some expansions that we're, I think, inevitably going to see in the mining sector, I mean, from your perspective are you bullish on the future for your workers because there's a lot of down in the mouth out there well yes we're in really tough times here on the bjorn peninsula you know we have the issue with the mine up in st lawrence yeah uh, we have greg seafoods down there uh, marystown uh, marabase incorporated uh, which uniform is a part of as well uh, that's been uh, signed up four and a half years ago we've just only handled salmon feed so that's another issue for another day uh, getting back to the oil and gas again uh, critical stage our government officials and equinor get a sit down and we have to maximize these benefits you know like lip service is not good enough and you know We've had too many setbacks over the years, uh, Patty. That we have, uh, and getting it right has always been the trick, and I suppose it's probably a little bit more contentious at the negotiating table on royalty regimes and equity stake and job opportunities, and you factor it all in, and it becomes a bit of a dog's breakfast. But on behalf of me and most everyone listening, I would assume, is hopefully every single person in the trades and engineering or whatever the case may be and any procurement, if we've got the people here, who have got the accreditation and the training and the experience. We need them all to get as much work as possible, whether it be bait in order or otherwise. 
Excellent point, and exactly what we're saying, what Darren King was saying yesterday, and what I'm saying here today. We need this work, uh, the, the next benefits agreements, and hopefully uh, going forward, uh, we'll have some good news uh, by the end of the first quarter for an announcement that the officially sanctions this project, uh, Petty. Appreciate the time, Rick. Thanks a lot. Anything else you want to say? Oh, yes, I'm a big Habs fan, and I know you are, too. Uh, yeah. Hopefully we get kind of <laughs> Yeah, we'd have to lose almost every game to, to uh, catch up with the Arizonas of the world, but, yeah. That's true. Okay, my Keep friend. something else. Thanks, Rick. You're welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. That's Rick Farrell. He's from Unifor Local 20. Okay, let's take a break relatively on time. When we come back, there's an update coming from line number four from Kevin. An update on what? Better stay tuned. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number four. Kevin, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, this is Evan. I uh, I called about my truck uh, there a bit. And everybody was telling me to call Camvan. Oh, Evan, right? Yeah, Camvan. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So um, the truck I bought, I just want to clear it up, was a brand new truck. The dealership that she's in, that's getting fixed. They just called me. She's fixed. They've been more than fair with me. They've been really good to me. And I called Cam uh, Camvan, and the brand that I got, they don't deal with. I just want to let you know that. I had no earthly idea. Why? What brand is it? I didn't think I was allowed to say. Well, we'll leave it out. Did they tell you why they don't deal with that particular brand? Is there a certain issue behind that? I don't know. I just asked them. They said the dealerships have to, or the brand would have to uh, allow them to deal with it or something. Oh, okay. That kind of makes sense. So CamVap, for people who don't know what we're talking about, that's a place to go where they can put uh, an arbitrator uh, to help solve a dispute between you and wherever you bought your rig. So it's the Canadian Motor Vehicle Arbitration Plan. Yes, uh, I am... I called them, or sorry, I emailed them as soon as I left open line. Within an hour, they called me. So they were very good that way. People have reported having great success with them. Yeah, I've done a few things on there checking up the reviews, and it was great. It's just that you don't deal with the brand I got. Well, that's too bad. But she's here. I'm on the way to pick her up. She's fixed. So far as I know, I'll see how long I get out of her this time. <laughs> I'll just have. I'm going to pop up on the website and see if there's. Uh, okay, so there's actually a list of participating manufacturers, and it's a pretty long list, and it includes products that were sold by Ford, GM, Honda, Hyundai, uh, Jaguar, Kia, Lucid Motors, Volvo, Volkswagen, Toyota, Subaru, Porsche, Nissan, Mercedes-Benz, and Mazda. So you fall outside of that category. Those categories, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the update, Kevin. I wish CamVap had been more help to you. Well, hopefully she lasts this time. Hopefully so. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, I mean, just to add a bit more context to that. So when you have a dispute with a certain manufacturer and you're getting nowhere, this organization, people have told me uh, repeatedly since we brought it forward, and I, I think it was Colin up in Labrador put me on to CamVap, is that they put an arbitrator in and... As opposed to fighting the good, fight, uh, the good fight on your own, these folks have had extraordinary success. The reviews that I have been receiving ever since I mentioned this outfit have been, by and large, glowing. So they obviously cover a wide array of manufacturers. And if you have indeed dealt with CAMVAP, like the dozens who have contacted me and said they had good luck with them, they were very responsive and attentive and in timely fashion. So that's the good news. Too bad Kevin's rig felt, uh, fell outside. The participating manufacturers. Let's go to line number three. Wayne, you're on the air. Okay. Hi. Hello. Hello, Wayne. How you doing? Top shelf, you. Not too bad. Good. I, I got an issue that I, I said I, I, I wasn't planning on doing anything about it, but I, I think like something needs to be done. I'm living on Bella Island, and last 
week I had an incident that I had a allergic reaction to spices or whatever I was eating. So anyway, I'm only two minutes away from the hospital. So no one was called. They told me, or they informed me, to go, they, I said I was only two minutes away. They said, go to the hospital. Went to the hospital when I got down there. And like I said, now my, my airway was starting to uh, close off. And my throat was still not 100% just. So anyway, when I went down, I was refused entry to the hospital. I was told that I would have to wait in my truck until an ambulance arrived. Well, they were simply full? They were over capacity inside? They said they were short-staffed. Oh, okay. And so what was the end result? You waited in the truck, someone came knocking for And then I had to be rushed and clears. Oh. So you never got in the door first or last? They had to put you in an ambulance and take you in the door and never had no medical staff come check on me or anything. <laughs> The security guard was the one that was told, was before me that not hurt. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't their problem. They were told to do the job, so I wasn't allowed in there. Yeah. You got, you got a crowd of seniors and disability people down there living in that hospital, right? So I'm assuming there should be a registered nurse down there 24-7 because the LPNs can't do what the registered nurse can do. So if it had to be a registered nurse here that night... Why can I be just checked on? By the time the Emmons got there and I got uh, action on me, I'd say, like, they eased it up, but I was the longest wall even, say, leaving here to go to St. John's to get, I had to get the ferry and whatever, and, you know, in St. Clair's then, like, but I had the action on from the time I left the island till I was in the St. Clair's for probably an hour or so before they removed it. But then they gave me something to ease up the swelling on the throat. And so what was it? What did they diagnose you with? You say that you were I having some... I had a, re- a reaction to the spices that I was eating. Okay, what kind of spices were you eating? It was like a, uh, like a steak spice, but it was on a, uh, on a meat, like a Montreal steak meat. Montreal steak spice, yeah, we use it too, yeah. Yeah, right. But this was already baked into the meat, right? You know what I mean? Like it was, it was purchased that way. It was already baked in there. Okay. So, what, like an allergic reaction where your throat was swelling up or... I don't know if, it, if, it, uh, if the spice or whatever burnt the throat and caused it to swell. Uh, like, like, even when I went to the hospital, they'd done allergy tests and stuff like that on me. Yep, yep. And I never had no allergies as per se, but whatever happened with this spice, it, it, uh, it must have inflamed the throat and swollen. So do you use that Montreal steak spice otherwise, for instance, if you're going to put a piece of meat on the barbecue or anything? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I don't know what happened that night, whatever it was. But like you said, Tony is what, what my thing was is that, like, I can understand. Like, I, I even reached out to our MHA, Dave Brazel, and told him what happened and asked him would he get in touch with me so I could have a conversation with him about it. And I never heard back from him. But now, like, it's up to yourself, I don't, like, whatever. But Tony is what I'm thinking about is that, like, you got a lot of seniors on the on here and people that are sick and. Uh, you know, stuff like that. People look up in their 80s. So if at any given time they go to the hospital and they can't, say, help themselves. I was lucky because I could drive, I drove myself down there and, like, sat in the truck until they got there. But if you've got someone that can't do that and is refused entry to the hospital, what are you going to do, die? Well, hopefully not. You know, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, like, how can you, if you've got a medical facility 
How can you refuse anyone interest? Well, I suppose if there's no one in there to see you, then it would be just come on in, sit down, uh, put your feet yes. up and stay warm. But, yes, yes. I mean, like even the emergency room at Bell Island was closed there for a while. Maybe still is. I don't know. I don't know either. We've seen a lot of these stories in the recent past. Like, I mean, the emergency room with Whitburn has been closed for six months. Yeah. And with no end in sight to that particular diversion or closure as well. But if somebody arrived here, I'm sure somebody would tend to them. You would think so. You know what I mean? What yep. are you going to do? Leave you up in your vehicle to, to pass away? Instead of saying, you know, you know to see what, what the issue is, that they can help you. Yeah, I understand. So I don't know what the staffing uh, quota is at the best of times inside the hospital on Bell Island versus what it was that night where you presented yourself with a swole trot. So, Wayne, at the end of the day, you get to St. Clair's, you got the help you needed. Were you admitted or were you just uh, dealt uh, with in the air? I, I was there till I think it was 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning before they had to release me. They wanted to make sure everything was functioning good yep. and I could get around on my own before I left the hospital. But like I said, like what I'm looking at is like, okay, I'm down, uh, down sitting in the truck waiting for ambulance to come, and what about if I had to pass it before the ambulance even got there? Like, like my airway was being instructed, like uh, constricted with reading. So what are you supposed to do? Like I'm sitting in the truck by myself, and I'm like, oh, well, okay, uh, the show's up. I got to wait, wait here anyway. I was afraid to to leave to go back home, afraid I would pass out. Yeah, I understand. All you right. Know, I, I, like, like I said, the MHA got on, and I can understand, like, he, well, he's living in the city and all this, but he was, like, he, he com- like, commented on uh, how well he was looked after by the staff and that. Staff is not an issue. Like, you know, sure, no problem. They looked at you, they would have probably looked after me if they had to be down there. But why, why, uh, if people got to wait so something drastic happens to part, try to install something down there that you can go in there like any time of the day or night if you're sick. Yeah. Something, something around here, right? Yeah, and it's a staffing issue, and it has been for most of these types of stories. Well, I'm glad you're doing okay now, Wayne. I appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Patty, ah. I want to send a, a, a bouquet out now to, the, to all the ambulance drivers that tended to me on the Bell Island and the ones that brought me to St. John's. Fair enough. They deserve your thanks. Yeah, and uh, I tell you, they were very helpful. Good. Glad to hear it. All right, thank you. Thanks, Wayne. All the best. All right, uh, time for the news. When we come back, still a big chunk of show left to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Brenda, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I was just wondering about the that GST that uh, everybody was supposed to get this month. Was that already doubled? Because mine didn't seem like it was, I got an extra 30 bucks. Yeah. Okay. Good question. So the language surrounding that announcement was clumsy, to say the very least. So what it was was a six-month doubling of GST payments starting November the 4th of last year. So the one-time bump that people got happened right off the bat. So this month's check where people were anticipating seeing what they thought would be double, it wasn't that at all. So what people saw back in November was an additional $234, I think, for a single person, up to $460 for a couple with two children. So the double that people thought they were getting on the 5th of January was not going to be a double. Okay. Yeah. They talk about it being an additional one-time GST credit payment, but the big one happened in November. People are getting 
pretty much what you just said. They're 30, 50 bucks more than they would have normally got last January. Uh, okay, so that's 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 it. There's no, uh, it's not going to be like you know maybe like like it was in October where we had to wait till November and get. No, that's right. the 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 bump that people got the one timer, they call it a one timer again. The language is just so foolish with this announcement. Is the big one that people got was November. The January fifth payment was just going to be marginally more than you got last January. So the number you gave me thirty is very much what I've heard from many people thirty, fifty, but not a, a so called double. Okay, my buddy. Now, I was just so curious about it, and I listened to your show the past uh, week or two, and I said, I'm surprised nobody called in. I never heard nothing. Yeah, we've had a few calls on it. Uh, and again, the way that it was initially described, people had all of these visions of grandeur. They were going to get all this additional money, and I'm going to try to remember what it was. So it was $230 for a single person, just over $300 for a married couple, Almost $400 if you were a single parent with just one child, and then all the way up to $460 if you were a couple with two children or more. But that big one, that went out uh, three months ago, so the January payment, just a little bump. Alrighty, and then no, no, thank you very much, though. You're welcome. Hey, listen, Patty, can I uh, can I give a shout-out to a friend, because I know he's listening to your station, he loves listening to you every morning. Fire away. Uh, hello, Randy Lawler, wishing you all the best. I know you're listening to the radio. You adore Patty. Take her easy. Where's Randy? He's a buddy of mine. He lives down in uh, in St. Thomas Line. Okay, down in St. Thomas's Line. Good morning to you, he Randy. Listens, Thanks for tuning yes, in. He, he listens to you every morning. Love it. God love you. Thanks a lot, Patty. Thanks, Brenda. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye bye. Yeah, that the way they announced that was certainly a lot more grand than it turned out to be, but it was the equivalent of six months worth of payment in a one time bump. And the numbers that I gave, I think, are accurate within three, four dollars per category. Uh, let's go to line two. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you, Patty. I was listening to uh, Phil Under talking about growing our own food and that stuff, which I commend them, and uh, I'm all for it, and I do whatever I can to help them out or do anything. But one of the biggest problems that I was talking about for years is that there's a big market here that they're not going to be allowed into and not going to be able to sell to because our government is given a, a corporate contractor all the contracts to supply food to the hospitals, penitentiary, schools, orphanages, old age homes, and all the rest of it. So there's monopoly there that is there that is taken away from these people that uh, – uh, I don't want to sound like they don't have a good idea in that, whatever, but this is an obstacle that we've got to overcome with the government as to the way they're feeding everybody in the government institutions. And that same contractor also has uh, interest in supplying uh, businesses like Subway and Starbucks and these people. So then you got to deal with the uh, supermarkets and that, that they all have contracts probably in place for supplying these products and that, so they got to wait to get all this in. So what I'm saying is that I'm all for it. I do whatever I can to help them out and uh, do whatever. But as far as I'm concerned, the government has to set forward. Not be two-faced and tell these people, oh, yeah, you know, we sold into the schools and the things everywhere it needs to go, fresh product for our children and our elderly and everybody else in the sick. But this market is blocked. And 
were being charged excessively, excessive amounts of money for it all. But the government is two-faced in that they're giving these contracts. At the same time, they're telling people, oh, yes, boys, we've got to grow our own vegetables. We've got to be food, uh, you know, not dependent on outside sources and, that and all the rest of it. When they, recre- when they created a one-man show and that supplying all of this food that companies, I think, will need in order to survive like this. And uh, I thoroughly wish them all the best. Now, another thing that i like to bring up, I sent an email to all the government members uh, this, this week. Anyway, somebody blocked uh, a lot of the members from getting my emails. And one of them was my own, own MHA. And he's not very happy about it that somebody is blocking emails that I sent to him. And so should every government member. So, you know, I don't know what's going on there, but somebody blocked a bunch of emails. I think it was 14 to 14 different members. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is not right. And it should be looked into as to why it was blocked. Now, I sent you some emails onto it. As a matter of fact, I sent you some emails here lately that you had a lot of reading if you read it all. But something I would like every Newfoundlander needs to read is the corporate watch. And the corporate watch, you can go into that and look at the scandals of the Compass Group. And you will see there, it give you a good indication of what Eastern Health has brought into our province to take all of our money and downgrade our medical system. The whole, the whole system is all, I don't know what you may call it, is being destroyed. Well, and I do know there's negotiations at this very moment for getting local produce into personal care, long-term care, schools, and hospitals here in the province, regardless of the contracts that are in place. Yeah, well, like I said, we, we've got to go after, everybody in Newfoundland should go after the government to get rid of this contractor that, well, this contractor do have a place in society because they're one of the biggest in the world suppliers of food. And this is who we got to go in competition with. Now, uh, how we does it or whatever, we've got to do it. It's true, the government. But right now, when people want to sell them turkeys and that stuff, they comes up with the excuse that, oh, we can't buy your turkeys because they got to be mechanically deboned and the wheat meat goes for meals and the dark meat goes for soups. And they're afraid of a bone. So we're not allowed to sell turkeys to any government institutions or anything, or turkey products, because of this. Like, totally ridiculous. They'll come up with some reason uh, to, say, the bar, the local people. So the local people, the only way to do it is either join them or compete with them. Uh, it's very difficult with the government that we got, uh, and especially the ex- executive of Eastern Health. We've we got a big, serious problem here in that we're not going to have, you know, Eastern Health right now is privatized. Uh, the, all the boss jobs are going to outside contractors, all the management. There's not going to be any more uh, management in Eastern Health that are government employees in the near future. Well, a buddy of mine's a manager at Eastern Health, and he's born and raised east end of town. Um, and he doesn't work for them. Yeah, there are there are some there now, but it's written into the contract with this contractor that any positions that comes available, they shall be filled by Compass employees. That's written in the contract. 
So if the contract, he retires tomorrow, he goes, the Compass shall put a Compass employee in there. It's written in the contract in black and white. So, you know, this stuff is wrong. Here we got Newfoundlanders working 20 or 30 years in Eastern Hill, and then when a management position comes open that they're well qualified to take, they can't have it because somebody with no experience and no nothing, just because they're a company's employee, will get that job. And we're paying, what we're paying for one man of the Compass group, we could hire on 10 people for the same money. So, you know, this stuff is all there. It's all there in front of our faces. It's all there written down, but nobody bothered to read it. And I put it on the people there now. Anybody's near a computer, put in corporate watch and the scandals of Compass Group, and they'll read and you'll see how these people operate through bullying, bribing, bribing uh, government officials and executives and everything else is all there. And this is a, this is a big national company, company that is, is being fed by their own greed. But look, you know, how do you get across to the people? How can you make them read it? You can't. You can only tell them, but they're not listening. The reason why the state of our health care is in it is because of this company is taking so much money out of this province. But how, like, like you said, now I'm doing my part. I'm taking them to court. I got papers filed under now to take them to court. But can I get any backup? No. I've sent all the government members now uh, emails onto this. They all know about it. Nobody is doing anything. The power of this company is greater than the, this whole province. They have more employees than this whole province. They have more money than this whole province, but they want more. And they're going to put us down. They're going to sink us if we leave them alone because they are going to all aspects of the government and they'll take over the whole government. And this is the way they work. Look at their past history, read it, research it, and you'll know that what I'm talking about is true. And everything that I'm saying, I can back it up. Fair enough, Mike. <clears throat> My throat's pretty much gone here. Uh, Mike, Dave wants me to put you on hold for some reason, but I appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. So am I still there? Okay. Uh, maybe there's some on-air gremlins that are attacking the program here for the last little bit. But let's go ahead and take our last break, and we'll see what's up after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we know people tune in and out as it's available to their, their time at work or at home. But there's a lot of people reaching out for me to speak to the issue of the uh, organization we're talking about that could be involved in your dispute with an automobile dealer uh, as an arbitrator. And they're called CAMVAP. So a bunch of emails just in the recent few minutes about exactly that. Who they are, they're called the Canadian Motor Vehicle Arbitration Plan. They have a bunch of partners uh, with various manufacturers where they will get involved. If you have a dispute, you can report it to them. They can get involved with the application guide, the arbitration process, and even get involved in uh, appeals and complaints. So they've had great success. Pardon me, people tell me they've had great success by using the services at CAMVAP. So again, it's a really easy website if you are so inclined and you have an ongoing issue with an automobile dealer. It's simply www.camvap.ca. So camvap.ca. That's the go-to organization that people have recommended to me and consequently we've heard from many who've had some successes with them.
And, and just for the purpose of clarification, I suppose, you know, uh, I think it was intended to call me uh, a pejorative when someone said, "Boy, you know, liberals can do nothing right." You know, some days I'm uh, I'm apparently a liberal, some days I'm a Tory, some days I'm a Dipper, some days I'm a communist or a socialist, whatever the case may be. This person can quite cross with anything short of glowing review of how the government is handling the recruitment and retention of healthcare workers, specifically about their want to go abroad, as we've done. So we have sent recruiters to a city in India. How that worked, whether or not they actually came back with any registered nurses from that country, we have no idea. And then specifically, the person was really quite cross that we did anything other than be praising the fact that they're gone to Ireland. Look, the government probably has zero option beyond being as aggressive as possible, thinking outside of the box as far as possible to try to cure the ills. Because the numbers even revealed today by narrative research and the population data that they look at is that if we went from 125,000 people in the province without a family doctor to 136,000, then government really has very few options. We're fighting with other provinces, we're fighting with other territories, we're fighting with other countries to try to recruit and to retain, and particularly in this case, family doctors. Even though they're tripped to Ireland, they'll hire whatever healthcare discipline, but they're really focusing on doctors. So it's not that it's a bad thing, but it's also important to know whether or not it's going to be worthwhile, worth our time and our money, and how do we gauge success. So if we're sending 11 recruiters across the pond to visit four cities in six, day, six days, it doesn't make it a bad thing. It's just we don't know what the target is and how we measure whether or not it was worth our time and or while and or our money. Factor into it, Ireland has some very similar circumstances that they're dealing with that we're dealing with provincially in our health care. There was an interview with a representative of the uh, Irish, I, I just call it the Irish Doctors Association. I don't know what the technical term is for that group. And they described that they are extremely worried that they're going to lose even more doctors from their churn. Because they've already seen doctors leave for Canada, which apparently has been an attractive option, Australia, New Zealand, and parts of the United States. So we're overdoing the exact same thing. See if we can dangle a carrot or craft a message where Newfoundland and Labrador might be an attractive place for Irish doctors to come and live and work. Now also remember, when you go to a country like Ireland or anywhere in Europe, you're casting a pretty wide net. That doesn't just mean if you're in India, pardon me, if you're in Ireland, that you're simply going to be speaking to Irish-born and bred and trained doctors or Irish nurses. You may indeed be encountering people who are from England or Scotland or Wales or other parts of Europe because the melting pot and the mobility of people in that part of the world much different than what we see here. So who knows who's going to want to come, but when we have you know, the cultural overlap that the government's relying on, but Ireland dealing with very similar problems inside of their healthcare delivery model with staffing shortages and burnout and issues regarding pay up and down the line, not too much different than what we're seeing, you just wonder whether or not it's going to be as successful as you know the government hopes it is. You know, and then there's the thought that, well, politicians don't care if you live or die. They don't care if they get you a doctor. When I don't think that's really true, because there is a massive political victory available if all of a sudden government was able to say, well, based on the efforts, based on the incentives, based on the suite of lures, we have decreased the number, which is not happening, from 125, 125,000 down to less than 100,000 or whatever attractive number you can pop out there. If they were able to do that, then that would be a reason for them to score some political points. So I don't necessarily understand why people say that they don't care if we have any doctors because the fewer people that have doctors, the worse that the wait times may become, the worse that healthcare outcomes may become 
is bad for them. It's terrible for them politically. So there's every reason in the world to think that they would love to not be committing political harry-carry, is that they would be trying to make it better because their political future probably depends on it in large part. Okay, so that's one. And uh, you know, people hear what they want to hear or how they want to hear, and that's fine. But hopefully they'll take the opportunity maybe to make a call because that's absolutely my favorite. Then in the exact same email is why we're hesitant to talk about certain topics that have been brought forward in the news, whether it be the conviction of an RNC officer on the West Coast for assault against her former partner, and that happened. And we're not afraid to talk about uh, Constable Noel, Noel Late because that's a topic that's absolutely up for discussion if you're so inclined. And then it's some of the issues that we see, the daily ongoings at the courts. Look, when things are being evaluated in court proceedings, we're happy to talk about it. Now, we're never going to get any additional information beyond what we hear from court reporters or what have you. But the one that's getting some attention now is a, some sexual exploitation charges against a woman who was a high school teacher. Her name is Krista Grimes. She's facing, uh, facing a variety of charges. Some of it stemmed from an anonymous email, a tip to the RNC that this was happening. You know, I don't know much about it because the, we're just at the very beginning of the trial. Initially, Ms. Grimes had selected a judge and jury trial, but now she's gone back to judge only, is my understanding. And so we're just at the very early days of understanding exactly what's involved in the allegations and the accusations. And where it goes from here, I don't think anybody knows. So the letter that was anonymously sent referred to her as a pedophile, someone having sex with boys. But what I'll throw into that is it is a little bit interesting to know what type of coverage and the tone of coverage and reaction, whether it's Noel Late versus Noel Late, whether it's Krista Grimes versus Johnny Grimes. There's just a little bit of difference in how some of those cases are covered and the tone of reaction from the general public. But, hey, like I admit freely off the top of most shows, it's hard for me to know exactly what you want to talk about, exactly what's of interest to you. That's where you come into it. If you've got a topic that has not been broached or has not been discussed as extensively as you would like or even to elaborate on what you've heard, that's where I rely on you to connect with the show. And you can do it on Twitter. You can do it via email. But my choice, my preference, pardon me, is if you do it via the phone. Final check-in on the Twitter box for the morning. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.